I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. Take a magic carpet ride. Bionic. Oh, apt description. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because this week we have uh, a very thought-provoking guest with us. We have Mr. Adam Allen Boss, uh, the author of the book Fishers of Men, the Gospel of an Ayahuasca Vision Quest. And we're going to be talking about a case study of a traditional Christian's embrace of ayahuasca shamanism and potential future impacts to society. Um, This was somebody who Mitch Horowitz, who was on our show before, suggested to us. This person comes from a, uh, a Christian upbringing, and this is going to provide a lot of food for thought for fellow Futurians, Christians, about what this foretells for society. Uh, it, it, it's somewhat disturbing, but it's going to be very informative. So mm-hmm. we got to go to the interview, but uh, here is Adam Ellenboss, and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And Tom, uh, I prophetically think this is going to be an intriguing one. Bionic. Wow. That's a little <laughs> foreshadow. It's a little foreshadowing in there, too. I, I would to think of it as just prophecy. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have a fascinating guest with us this week, yet again on Future Quake, uh, on a topic that's come up numerous times on the Future Quake show. Uh, this one is going to be particularly relevant uh, to our community and some quite thought-provoking information. Uh, we have with us Mr. Adam Allenboss, uh, who is the author of a new book out called Fishers of Men, the Gospel of an Ayahuasca Vision Quest. And uh, the, our theme this week uh, is a case study of tradi- a traditional Christian's embrace of ayahuasca shamanism and the potential future impacts to society. So I know all of you out there who followed our show over the years know this is going to be a very intriguing discussion we're going to have. And Mr. Ellenboss, I just want to welcome you for your first visit to the Future Quake Show. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. This is uh, this is great. I love what you're doing, and happy to be here for sure. Well, uh, you know, I was forwarded your book by a former guest of ours, Mitch Horowitz, uh, who who I guess runs your publication house there or some part of it. Uh, he was a very popular guest on our show, uh, very well received, and we had a good time with him. And he had forwarded uh, this theme and the book. Uh, and I have to say, after reading your book cover to cover, it was quite a thought-provoking read. Uh, and to begin our discussions today, can you give us a very brief capsule of what you are up to today in terms of your current vocation and your other activities? Sure. Um, so I, I live in New York City right now, and um, I grew up in the Midwest in Minnesota. So, but I've I've made my way around through graduate school, and and then came to New York to be a part of a burgeoning spiritual community that's here and through a web magazine called Reality Sandwich. So I, I'm a contributing editor for this web magazine. Which is all about a sort of, you know, topics of consciousness and spiritual evolution and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, in addition to writing for Reality Sandwich, I, uh, I'm an author, so I, I wrote this book and I and I write and do uh, freelance editing work. And then um, I'm also uh, the uh, founder and director of uh, of an astrology school. So I uh, I'm an astrologer. I have a private practice here in New York City, and and I also train um, aspiring astrologers here in the city too. Hmm. Now, on your book, it also said that you um, worked in a, a, a living quarters for uh, people with schizophrenia. Is that correct? 
Yeah, the last two years up until, I guess, about last spring, I was working as a, an art and activities therapist with the uh, Franciscans um, here in Manhattan at a residence home uh, and a single room occupancy, you know, right here in Chelsea. And uh, I worked with about 90 adult schizophrenics as a case manager and, and an activities art therapist. Okay, all right. Because uh, I remember one of your businesses, I think it was on the jacket cover, what it was called Ohm Wellness is that? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's another. I'm I'm involved in so many. I'm like a yeah. jack of all trades. I've, I teach at a holistic nutrition school too. So I'm uh, you know I'm a bit of a teacher and uh, of of many different you know spiritual subjects and and uh, you know New York City you can uh, you can follow your dreams and do lots of fun right. stuff. You must be 65 years old to have all these. Is that about? Am I pretty close <laughs> on your age? No, we're we're talking about. I'm I'm 29, so I'll be I'll be 29. I'll be, uh, I'll be uh, exiting my my twenties uh, this this in 2011 too. So yeah. I just turned I just turned 29. So I'm a young guy. Well, I wonder if like the next 60 or so will just be real boring and be sort of a downer after this last 30. <laughs> I hope not. I don't think you could keep up with your first 30 just on on the book uh, that I read of your of your exploits in your life to date. M- much of your book centers on the psychological and spiritual impacts of your evolving relationship with your parents. It seems to be a central premise in your book. Could you very briefly describe them and how your relationship with them up to the time of your movement to the suburbs of Minneapolis, which was a turning point, uh, how your relationship with them impacted your relationship with God? Sure. Well, um, I know that you took an entire book to explain that. I'm asking <laughs> you because yeah. I, I've got 500 questions here. So <laughs> as succinctly as you can do that without confusing yeah. our audience. No problem. I've... Uh I, I mean, I grew up with uh, a father who is a, a United Methodist uh, minister, and and so I grew up in the church in uh, small towns in in Minnesota, rural Minnesota, and uh, you know, so I was shaped by the you know evangelical Protestant tradition. And uh, as I grew older, though, both of my parents uh, came out of uh, more esoteric, universal, uh, you know, ex- explorations of consciousness in the late '60s and early '70s. So I was also influenced to a large extent uh, by Native American, uh, you know, uh, Buddhist, I mean, really almost like, like sweat, a... Uni- sweat Lodge kind of... Yeah, yeah, oh, it's sort of a unitarian, a little bit of a Unitarian flavor uh, to my upbringing, but it was very much in the closet because my parents were, um, you know, that was kind of their side interests, and uh, they were very open-minded, very liberal um, uh, evangelicals, I guess you could say. You know, I wonder how common that is with other ministers across the country. Where they have more interest like that, but they sort of keep it a little quiet because of what the congregation might think. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, my experience growing up in the community of ministers and uh, clergymen and all that is uh, that I think there are a lot of, uh, a little bit of, you know, some, some repressed interests in other uh, spiritual traditions and, and ways of relating to God that... Um, I, I unfortunately I think get a little stifled and and that's where I think the lives of ministers end up getting into trouble and you know the repression comes out into into something you know like a, a marital affair or you know yeah. some kind mm-hmm. of you know uh, disappointing the congregation and their leadership duties or whatever um, and so yeah that's a part of it. But what I gathered from the book, uh, if if I were to summarize my impression of your early days, there were things you really enjoyed going out and doing some of these initiation kind of things in the TP that your dad had, doing things where you all had one-on-one time, 
but then in, in the nature, it seemed like you were very nature connected in, in kind of things, and, and it clicked with your spirit even at a young age. But then you saw what went on in the church, and what went on with the parishioners and the things that they were busybodies about, how how your dad had to sort of change and be different around them, and and it almost seemed like, and I don't think this would be uncommon for for preachers' kids, is that there almost was a competition between him having to appease them and then at the same time turning around to the needs of your family. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you said, I think it's really common in, in households that feature like a, a mom or dad who are in, uh, you know, the ministry of, or a spiritual vocation of some sort. Um, and and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I often felt like my private time, you know, with my family was in competition with the public sphere that we occupied as a family. And, mm-hmm. and that was difficult to deal with. And for sure, the, the retreats that my family tended to enjoy where it was just us had to do with our private teepee on, you know, per- parishioner's land or going out in the canoe or uh, my dad would read legends uh, from, you know, the various Native American tribes and uh, Greek mythology. And so, again, like I had this private education and mm-hmm. private time with my family that in many ways was more esoteric, I guess you could say, yeah. or, or more universal. And whereas you, your main spiritual experiences, formative ones growing up, really weren't within the walls of the sanctuary of the church, were they? They were more outside of that. I mean, I guess it's it's hard to yeah, but I would yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I'd say that yeah. most of my real formative experiences, well, what I would say personal experiences with God came through uh, you know natural revelation as opposed to the revelation mm-hmm. of scriptural teachings and stuff like that. It was too hard for me to separate that from my father because he was the one doing the teaching. You know. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Well, you know what's interesting? You mentioned earlier about him um, having these other interests, you know, other esoteric interests. And, and you only allude to it here and there in the book. Um, but that at the same time, he was a rising star. It took a while, but he was a rising star within the Methodist ranks, right? I mean, he that was part of the problem in your family, was that he was so popular that he kept growing up and up and up in size of church. As, as, as well as increase in responsibilities. So regardless of that other side he had behind it, it sounded like his den in the book was his own little world where he went to a world completely away from what church people would expect. It was his yeah. own area to listen to Grateful Dead or whatever like that. <laughs> but, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, it's what you mentioned in your book. Yeah, but yeah. That, that was his own world. But yet the side they saw was very popular, and he became a very popular growing figure within the Methodist ranks. Yeah, I mean, it was a weird thing. He was just a really uh, kind of a wise, uh, uh, politically correct theologian. I think he he spoke sermons that were, um, like, again, the word universally, you know, they were universally applicable sermons that touched on archetypes that I, I see now that everyone dealt with. At the same time, um, he avoided a lot of uh, language and specific topics that could possibly marginalize or alienate people. So, because you had some people in the church in Methodist churches in the Midwest, anyway, you had a lot of more liberal folks who might have been Democrats or voting mm-hmm. that you know to, for the woman's right to have an abortion, or you know. So the my yeah. dad had, was very political, you know. So that's why a lot of people started joining the churches because hmm. the Baptist churches in town, for example. Um, you had to walk a very specific political line. And in our church, there were Republicans, Democrats, independents, because those subjects just sort of weren't, uh, we talked about things uh, outside of, you know, sort of not using Jesus as like a political device or the scriptures as a political device. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that's what, and my dad, I, I really think that as his popularity grew because of, you know, that, but he, his, the roles that he was assigned by the conference in Minnesota became, 
you know, more prestigious, and he became more like a CEO, having to manage really large budgets and extra pieces of land the church would own that they're trying to sell and get out of debts and apportionments not being paid. And, you know, so I think that that, that was really something that super stressed him out, and I saw him spending less time with my family and more time sort of in his own, you know, like he hit a little den, it was like a man cave that he would retreat. Right. And he really wanted to keep you out of it. Um, for all of that that growing tension, it really went up a notch when you when you went to the big time and moved to the suburbs of Minneapolis from from a rural church, smaller church. What happened in your family as a whole with your father, with the new responsibilities in a big church in the suburbs, and the dynamics with your mom, you, each of you three? What what changed at that stage? Well, I mean, I think the main thing was that uh, it, it was. I mean, I think our whole culture was kind of acting it out. That was the, you know, the plastic credit card days of the 90s, you know, and, and like Bill Clinton took office and, you know, everyone had a saxophone to play metaphorically, you know, like mm-hmm. it was like like uh, my dad was coming into the prime of his achievement. My mom was uh, doing a master's degree and working full time as a high school teacher um, and, and also as a, you know, as a nurse back and forth and. So my parents weren't around a lot, which is really the that's the uh, description of the suburbs for a lot of kids. They're just, you know, the, the they come home after school, and if you don't go to a sports practice, then you spend time by yourself or trying to babysit your sister or your brother. Or, and uh, I think it started there, just a, a slow, gradual disintegration of the nucleus of my family's bond. Things like dinner together, or you know, stuff like that, and. And I think that, I mean, over time, as my parents even spent less time together, um, you know, that was when my dad uh, had a, a, you know, an extramarital affair. And I, I knew about it three, four mm-hmm. years before anyone else in my family knew. And mm-hmm. I never I never said anything. I kept it inside because I was afraid my family would, you know, break up if I spilled right. the beans. And, and that was uh, that was really hard to deal with. And it was right simultaneously as Bill Clinton was coming out with his... Uh, you know, with his affair. And so, you know, at that moment, really, that that was where I started to make a change. I remember specifically having a logical insight that if my dad was open to many different avenues of experiencing God and sort of many different faces and masks of God and these universal interests that he had, then that that liberalness, I equated it with his, uh, you know, okay, so many gods, many voices of God, many faces of God, many women, dad. You know, and and so that but really I remember and, and thinking the liberalness of Bill Clinton, all it equated to really was, uh, you know, a, a sort of ju- justification for devious behavior in the private life. So I started getting, you know, into the Baptist church. I, that's the worst thing you could do to a, a Methodist, you know, father to rebel. Mm-hmm. You know, my first rebellion was was to leave my dad's <laughs> church and join the Baptists across town. You know, did they have a funeral for you like the Islamic people do in you do Christianity? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Jews do that too. Yeah, do they? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. So you went over now. Now at this phase when you did this, you really weren't full blown into major troublemaking yet, were you? I mean, you you were still hanging out with a sort of a rough crowd, right? I mean, in, in I was part like, of your life. Yeah, I mean, there was I mean, there was typical childhood rebellion stuff that was going on at the same time through my teen years as I was becoming, you know, more and more frustrated and confused by the religion and by my father's mother's roles and the you know, never never being able to get out of the private sphere. I did a lot of uh, I did a lot of you know uh, stuff under the curtain of nighttime, like egging people's houses and you know blowing dynamite up in the park and you know just getting into a lot of trouble, breaking into the church at night and stealing money from the office and 
just just uh, starting to get into trouble. But I, I wouldn't say it was as full blown as it became, you know, later in my twenties. But but you know, it, it started off like that and and just kind of kept spiraling. But you know, until until I thought, well, the, the real answer in for all of this to get my life on track is to get to like you know the real church, which would be the Baptist church across town. And then I kind of started trying to clean myself up and you know. And they, they were they were pretty strict, pretty pretty uh, straight laced about taking the the verbatim words out of the Bible and trying to apply them. Now now one thing that I found interesting, I was raised a Southern Baptist uh, and attended there until just a few years ago, uh, and the, the the Baptists that I knew and were with really did not embrace Pentecostal charismatic, and I never really associated with that. But in your experience. They went together, right? Those who had the Baptist sign out front also were were experiencing a a Pentecostal type spirituality. Yeah, I mean it's funny because really it's a mixed bunch. I mean you had that debate going on strongly within the Baptist Church. There were people in the Baptist Church who were, you know, they were on the other side of the aisle for people who were speaking in tongues and stuff like that. But uh, so I mean I think it, it would be misleading to say the Baptist Church I was attending was strictly Pentecostal, but Pentecostal okay. experience was a, a current running through that congregation that I went to, and oh. I did and I did participate in it. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, and it, it was in many ways as ecstatic as getting in trouble or doing something secretive or stealing or you know smoking cigarettes or drinking a little booze of you know something like that mm. because it involves an altered state of consciousness, and when you when you enter into that it's uh it's cathartic it, you can release emotions you can sob and cry and and really release stuff so it was uh you know i wouldn't say it was a drug but i would say that it was uh, uh maybe a, a first uh, and better substitute to getting into trouble now now can you explain a little bit about when you went to jesus camp uh that were run by people in these types of communities at that time in your life when you went there and there was a lady who was very much into these kind of uh, gifts of prayer language, speaking tongues, that kind of thing. She took you up on a hill or something, didn't she? And do that, and and it led to you having this uh, phenomena occur in your life. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like I should also say that you know, the Jesus Camp that I went to. If you've ever seen, there's a documentary that was made called, I think, Jesus Camp. And the the my experiences at the Christian camps and retreats that I went to were very similar to that in, in that Jesus Camp movie in that you're you're being indoctrinated pretty heavily um, by some pretty intense experiences and rituals that are designed to uh, you know to uh, connect you more deeply to to the particular point of view of that denomination or doctrine or whatever. And and at this camp, one of the things was that this particular leader at the camp, this woman, saw that I had a resistance, you know. I mean, I think she just saw I had some liberal roots and was a little bit more mm-hmm. laid back. I was a little bit more accepting of other ideas and stuff like that. And she kind of, she brought me up to a hillside one time, right, it was about to storm. And uh, she kind of, I don't even know if she coaxed me or what it was exactly, but it was a very persuasive and powerful experience where she kind of taught me how to speak in tongues. And uh, whether it was real or not, I, I don't know, but I know that it was it was really powerful and cathartic experience, also very confusing. Okay. Um, so so you, you don't know how it happened to you? I mean, you were just trying well, yeah, to fool I mean, her, right? Was, no, I, I mean, there was part of me that thought about it. Like, I remember I, I, we were standing on top of a hill, and she she was telling me, you know, just let go, just start letting gibberish come out of your mouth, and and that's the release of, 
your you know your soul and being able to speak the language of the angels and all of this and I was sitting there thinking man I got to do something because I'm going to disappoint yeah. this lady if I don't do something and but then I remember when I finally let go and did something that there was something else that I felt in the moment that was was authentic and uh, that was powerful and uh, but it wasn't clear cut you know and that's the nature sometimes of speaking in tongues and probably why Paul wrote about interpreters and being real careful with that kind of yeah. stuff because it's uh, it's a powerful it's a powerful thing hmm. well um when when that experience occurred that seems in what i read in your book you you went from a a um religious experience that was almost seemed like more of a philosophical philosophical discussion within the walls of the church and your methodist background and then and, and then the, the baptist you had a lot of doctrine that was obviously being taught bible doctrine and now you had an experience it was more of an experiential spiritual experience do you think that prepared you a little bit or you see a connection later i don't want to get into the ayahuasca uh, thing full blown right now, but later as you got into the experiential spiritual event with ayahuasca, did you see a connection there, or did it give a taste in your mouth that you wanted more of an experiential faith? Absolutely, what- absolutely. You know what the, the the most common thing I could say to foreshadow when we'll get into later is that the Pentecostal experience and shamanic experiences are both experiences of ecstasy and uh, you know religious ecstasy and a connection with. Uh, divine or or otherworldly spirit realm energies, and uh, they're definitely they're a they're not to be toyed with, and b um, that though you know they are real, and so I know I knew that 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 was an experience that prepared me or taught me that this this spiritual life and this journey that you're confused about and trying to figure out carries with it a spiritual dimension that can be experienced, not just thought about or come to the right answer about. Okay, okay. So it, it opened a, a doorway or it gave you a glimpse of something for later in your life uh, of something that would be a big challenge for you uh, to go through in an experience, uh, an experiential spiritual event. Absolutely. Okay. Um, what did you, this another interesting facet of your book, later on you, you sort of did, uh, even though you were living, again, a life of rebellion in one part of your life, it was almost like a split personality you had. Uh, you had this really rebellious part, but then you were going through some other motions. You went to a Christian college. Mm-hmm. You, some of your anecdotes in the book are really fascinating about what people think the, the good guy. You know, a lot of these people are going on to being pastors or you know other kind of leading in Christian ministries, and some of the way they behave there was so so different to that. That didn't come like a big shock to me, but I know it might be some who read that. But it, it, one incident talked about something that you observed in your class from one of the the more known liberal professors that you had talking about contemplative prayer because this was another glimpse you had into something that was sort of a connection for your future experience with ayahuasca. W- what did you learn at the Christian University about contemplative prayer? I think you talked about like page one eighty five of your books. Or... Yeah, sure. Um, I I mean. Bethel was uh, uh, definitely like a, you know, Baptist, another, you know, and I was following my friends from the Baptist church and it's kind of created a community of people and I was dating a girl and all of this. So I went to uh, a Baptist school. My family moved to Michigan. So I was really on my own and, 
And uh, as I was on my own and kind of, you know, like I had all of these secret, you know, as I'm trying to be like a good white male Republican Baptist indoctrinated student, mm-hmm. I also had this side of me that was sneaking out on the roof at night to smoke pot and going to the worship services and experiencing the Pentecostal elements yet again, but this time well under the influence of marijuana or whatever else. Um, and I was really curious about the experiential nature of, you know, the, the, the Christian faith. And so I had the, the, the tendency at w- was to look for the most liberal professors. And I had this one guy, uh, named Greg Boyd. And he was just, I mean, he's still, I mean, his books are uh, really great. And, and he had this one book in particular called, uh, On the Art of Cataphatic Prayer, I believe it was called, or something like that. It was a little pamphlet that he was working on. And, and we started learning about contemplative prayer and studying some of the more meditative, uh, you know, um, uh, saints and monks and, uh, you know, like, uh, Teresa of Avila and all this. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, what contemplative prayer, prayer was, was really like visualization exercises that related to scripture or, you know, like I remember one time he guided us through the story of the prodigal son, but we got to visualize ourselves as the prodigal son. And then from there, he like took us on a, you know, sort of like a guided walk through the, you know, the resurrection. And I mean, but just the experiential visualized meditation style and some of the more esoteric themes that we went into, like what would it feel like as a savior and a powerful man to also be dying and uh, afraid on the cross and, you know, all of these things that were really um, deeply experiential. Of course, I was going to class most of the time pretty high. So uh, um, and my, my, I was, that's where I was gravitating towards at school. But at least you were in Christian thing. college. Yeah, You right. may have been high on drugs, but at least you were a good boy because you're in Christian college, at That's least. That's right. That's that, right. I that, was, uh, that and the other future ministers who eventually joined you up on the roof and smoked pot with you. That's right. <laughs> who are now our leaders in the Christian community. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was part of the experience, too. Was, But, I mean, I, I found that, like, it, whereas I was willing to engage with my friends at the school say, well, what do you really think about this scripture while we're all sitting stoned on the roof? And they were more interested in figuring out the easiest way to sneak off campus to go to a strip club or to, to, you know, go, you know, it was just, and I, so I, I really did, I really did feel like it was hard to find c- communion, uh, amongst a more like liberal Christian who understood that the drugs and the partying were a part, a part of an exploration, uh, rather than, uh, Something that was just about being, you know, mischievous or something. So, so you had, uh, you're at the Christian college. You know, I, I want our listeners, you know, in, th- that still attend some of the major denominations when they pass the offering plate and they, they take the money that goes off our Christian universities. You support these wonderful people who are either contemplating it while they're stoned on marijuana or, uh, looking to sneak off, off campus like you were talking about, trying to do pranks or trying <laughs> to get laid or whatever. So I know they could, they don't waste that money sending it overseas for wells, you know, or, or, you know, generators for villages or keeping that, that system going. That's a very honest part of your book. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom Speedy Gonzalez, Bionic. Because we really don't have any time here. Hang with us, audience. Uh, you're gonna hear some very different things for our traditional Christian audience, but it has an important. There's a reason why we're going through this. Mm-hmm. And also Merv can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information.
email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. All right, let's hit it. Come back tomorrow for our second segment with Adam Ellenboss. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm also here at Future Quake doing the Tom middle name bionic thing. Bionic. Whatever that meant. I don't know. But we also are getting ready to play our second quest over here. Yes. Your second segment of our interview with Adam Ellen Boss, the author of Fishers of Men, The Gospel of an Ayahuasca Vision Quest. And we're talking about a case study of a traditional Christian's embrace of ayahuasca shamanism Mm -hmm. and potential future impacts to society. We've talked about this topic before. We know a lot of our Futurians are interested in what this whole story is evolving to be. And you're going to find out an impact it had to someone who was a former Christian, traditional Christian. Mm -hmm. And uh, you'll find it very informative. So Mm -hmm. here is Adam Ellenboss. We'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. It was interesting. I noticed here in, in, in that section, it says uh, when your class went through this experience, that he took you through a deep state of re- relaxation and overlooked the Jordan River. And then it says after the meditation, you said, somebody said that was like an acid trip. And then he <laughs> talked about what it was like with with acid. And in fact, I hope you don't mind. There's just a couple paragraphs here occasionally now and then I found really interesting. Yeah, um, go for it. It says... Uh, it says it was the um he responded about how how you know this guy had taken drugs at one time but then it didn't make any meaning to him uh and he and he said you said for a moment I wanted to try LSD in, in order to compare experiences uh something told me I might see something professor boyd was not able to see but each night after professor boyd's class and this is you speaking I practiced contemplative prayer I took meditation journeys into different worlds in, inside myself during one meditation, I saw pieces of the Statue of Liberty breaking apart into the ocean. Big copper pieces quaking and breaking like stress fractures of a towering eggshell following and falling and shattering on the ocean as if the water were made of concrete. I wrote the strange vision in my journal after my meditation. Okay, this is one where you see the Statue of Liberty collapsing. The next morning on September 11th, the World Trade Center towers were destroyed by commercial jet planes. I was wow. then 20 years old. Uh, and then you tried to share it with your roommates, that story. So, you, you, I don't know if you were looking at the Akashic Records or what it was, <laughs> and how you saw this event coming up, but, uh, s- somehow you saw something that was awfully uncanny, uh, at the time you were doing this contemplative prayer activity, and probably was further grooming for you for your experience. Now, a lot of your book is extremely dark about the descent of your family, individuals, and, and relationships. Uh, something that struck me about uh, later in the book is we got to know your grandfather a little bit more and influence he had on your father. What did you eventually find out about your family's multi-generational substance abuse? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess what what I found out was that, 
you know through through the journey of my book too it's uh it's played out in a you know in a much more nuanced uh subtle way but you get to see that my my grandfather uh you know to this day my grandfather still has an opiate problem um and the he needs them for uh some some real pain that he has in his body so the doctors are always having trouble because they give it to him and then he gets hooked on and they have to take him off and then he struggles because of his illness and so medicare a, medicare is his opiate pusher yeah, that's right. Okay, that's his drug dealer. He he actually, I mean, I so so for a time in in my life when I eventually later on I was living with with uh, near him on a um, family land on a cottage that my family had built and on his land uh, about eighty acres and and I was living next door to him and found out that you know he was addicted to uh, painkillers and that was about the same time that I was a drug addict so you know. It was really weird to figure out my grandfather and I were both addicted. And then simultaneously, my dad, I wouldn't say was ever, I've never seen my dad as addicted to any substance in my lifetime as my grandfather and I, but my dad, you know, marijuana, alcohol, I mean, at different points in my father's journey, he's had troubles with substances just like my grandfather and and me. Yeah, he hit the sauce pretty hard from, from what I could, I don't mean that lightly, but from your from your book. Uh, and as alcohol usually is, it behaves itself real well until you're feeling down or depressed, and that's when it starts flowing heavier and heavier. Yeah. I, I guess what I put together was it was sort of interesting, the, the bizarre connection, and it's not just your family. I think it goes with lots of families out there, that, that the, the hang-ups, the shortcomings, the issues that we all have individually in our relationships – will obviously make themselves often manifest in addictions and substance abuse. But every generation sort of has their own kind that they tolerate and that they see as okay and they're worried about the other generations. You know, for your grandfather, he and his peers, you know, he'd gotten to where they had he had a certain lifestyle and a degree of activity he wanted to keep, and he was willing to take an excessive amount of this medication to maintain it and felt justified in it. Uh, your father at the same time felt that he had all of these duties in that phase of his life in his generation, so he was willing to, to maybe hit that a little extra hard, as well as going back and somewhat at your prodding to go back and enjoy a, you know, a joint now and then and things like this to, to, to cope with his life and his generation. And then, of course, you had your own substance abuse issues. Of numerous, numerous different ways. So it, it almost reminds me of some of these multi-generational curses that you read about in the Bible. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's really it's as it's as old as the oldest uh, myths and stories. Like the uh, you know, you think of uh, like uh, King Minos and the Minotaur and that kind of the way in which the love for riches and wealth were a sort of uh, golden you know golden bull at the center of his kingdom and he built all of this wealth and everything like that and then you know of course the descent of his his wife into the rapture with the bull and they mate and it, it produces a evil minotaur that eats people and is kept then in a vast maze underneath the castles you know sequestered away and that's what happens i think to people who come into great riches whether it's spirituality or or uh you know, or or physical wealth like gold and mm-hmm. money, you, you eventually uh, run the risk of corrupting those around you and or corrupting yourself and and spawning some evil beast that then you have to push down into the cellars and and feed live children to once in a while or whatever mm-hmm. it is, you know. Right. And so that's kind of the fate I think of a lot of. I try to explore that generationally. I think we have a, a culture that. Maybe it's men and women, but I definitely was looking at the way in which men certainly 
uh, feel feel that they have this inner demon that they don't oh. know how to cope with. They turn to substance. Right, right. Although, in in the interest of full disclosure, I have to admit that one difference is I don't remember a Minotaur mentioned in your story once. <laughs> I, I never saw yeah. a Minotaur appear in the storyline. Put any live children down a hole to feed <laughs> no. Now, now there were some other strange characters, and that's what we're going to get into right now because we're going to switch gears into. Uh, you know, the bulk of your book talked about what we just talked about, and uh, I gave a, a Reader's Digest condensed version for our audience here, you and I. And uh, but I want to get into the, the real cause of the book was what it led you through a series of experiences to. Uh, well, I, I, if I remember correctly, some friends introduced you to the old magic mushrooms, and you had some experiences with that, and it was a very interesting experience that just wasn't like a regular high you might get from street drugs and then that led you to do some research and it led you to read about this revival of interest now in the west and in this ayahuasca uh, material which we've talked about on our show a number of times Uh, and and its active ingredient dmt and the moi inhibitors that are used and things like this um so you were led into uh exploring this ayahuasca phenomena um, and I, I, since you have been a long-term practitioner of this substance, this is a good question to ask you uh, for us who are just trying to, to understand more about the phenomena. For lack of a better term, what is the spiritual science behind, and I say that in quotes, behind the process of the ayahuasca ceremonies? And what do you think actually goes on in your head, spiritually otherwise? And, and how are these theories verifiable? In other words, are they just somebody's guess, imaginations, or wh- why why are there certain beliefs of how how this works and what actually under, occurs? Right. Um, well, those are. I mean, they're really good questions. Uh, you know, primarily because uh, again, we're, we're talking about experience, and you know, so the best the best answer that I could give, honestly, before I go into a more theoretical explanation, would be that it's. It's something that people feel called to. So even the best theoretical description uh, will oftentimes set up expectations for people, and then they go into these ceremonies, and the expectations become, in many ways, the subject of the experience. So, you know, it's something that really can only be experienced. I'll say that as a qualifier. But then, theoretically, I think the reason why you see so many people saying exactly the same thing about what ayahuasca is and how it works is because there's some things that ayahuasca seems to do every single ceremony for for people across the board. The first one is that after you drink this incredibly powerful tea made from a vine and a leaf that are sort of cooked over an open fire with water, the shaman drinks this too, and you all go into a, a deep uh, altered state of consciousness. And we're not talking about LSD or mushrooms mm-hmm. or... Uh, this. This is... In, in my experience, anyway, completely transcends the, and is far more powerful than any um, more recreational psychedelic experience mm-hmm. I had. Even the most reverent ones, where you're, you know, you're sitting at a, next to a campfire outside or something. Um, this is very profound and uh, takes you right out of y- your understanding of reality as you know it. It's like discovering the, the wardrobe door to Narnia, and mm-hmm. you step through and. There are spiritual beings that uh, you, if you, if if you encountered them, uh, you know, you you when you encounter them, there is no doubt in your mind that they're real, and not only that they're real, but that there's something of uh, their realness that seems to transcend 
uh, your everyday life. So you, when you encounter these demons and angels and creatures in this world and the images and visions of this world, A, they feel like something that is that is a deep part of your unconscious that's coming out, like remembering a dream uh, all of a sudden in full lucid details from the night before. You're like, wow, I... You know, and it's this feeling like I've been here before. I have always known that this place exists. And in fact, every day you have the understanding immediately that this spiritual dimension exists through the very tapestry of the world we live in. So you understand right away and people drink ayahuasca say this across the board that what you're experiencing is not an, a sort of altered, you know, drug state, but that you've entered into a dimension of reality that feels realer than your everyday experiences Mm -hmm. Um, and you start to understand the way in which it's co-present with your everyday experiences within 15 or 20 minutes of being in this dimension okay so in other words you aren't left with the impression that this is just a universe residing within your skull yeah oh no 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 no. this is yeah this is like like uh, you know you're, you're you're understanding things that you know very deeply like for example um you know, you you will like let's say once you enter into this space, you're 20 minutes in or something, and everyone in the room is starting to get pretty anxious and nervous because this is also so far beyond your everyday boundaries that it's it can it's very terrifying. Um, and so you you hear let's say you hear someone say, uh, "Oh my God, you know I'm terrified." Uh, immediately, let's say you're not terrified. Let's say you're kind of in a place that's like, "Wow, this is incredibly amazing." The first thought you have is, really, how could you think that this is terrifying? This is so amazing. What's wrong with you? As soon as you think that, no sooner than you think that, the person across the room will say, I don't know what's wrong with me. And then they'll start getting really afraid and start shaking and vomiting for five minutes. And you realize instantly that your thought was able to be received psychically mm-hmm. by that person. and Without being them. verbalized. So in other words, no. you, did, you did not prod them uh, by some kind of suggestion that was audibly... No, no. Okay. You, it's purely that your thought instantly traveled and affected someone. And so that's a teaching about the way in which judgment affects the physical world, even when it's not spoken. And that's the way in which you start to see, wow, th- this reality that's being exposed to me is, this is how life works. When you judge people, this is this is what happens. Psychically, we affect one another. And so that's like a, just a very common uh, you know, first layer of the uh, experience. But the second thing that it has in common is as the experience deepens through the night, um, you, you know, you're, you are being plunged into the most primitive fears um, that you can have, the fear of death and the fear of, you know, you can't take anything with you when you die. And that is, you are, in a sense, just shoved into the rivers of that truth and, and, it's for better or worse, you get to realize that your body is a container for something called a soul. And that experience in a, in a super profound way uh, is, is completely life-changing. And you, when you face the, that truth and simultaneously the fears and attachments that you have uh, that, that would want to keep you here and you know, not a part of that divinity or that eternity, you will purge. So people, when they face these fears, if they cannot accept their eternal nature, which is really the crucible of the experience, um, when you can't accept your eternal nature and you fight against the ego death that's happening, you vomit, you scream, you defecate, you thrash. And then as, as you're releasing all of this physical tension into a bucket, the images that are coming out of your mouth in the stream of vomit are 
of in- incredibly complex mandalas of behavioral archetypes that are representative of your sin or your darkness or your fear or your, you know, all the baggage that you carry that is inherently all the same thing, a rejection of the, the eternal uh, the eternal spark that lives within each one of us. Hmm. So that's, that's that. And so when people come out, we're all looking at each other like we just went through the same thing, which is we all fought against our divine nature all night and, uh, you know, like wrestled with God, you know, and that's, that's the yeah. experience. Now, uh, is there ever incidents where you and another person at the ceremony without one prodding the other see the same characters or entities? Oh. Absolutely. Every single ceremony I've ever had, for the most part, has involved at least one or two shared visions. Okay. So this is going to be something very, very hard for the rationalist to be able to explain. Uh, yeah, and as a matter of fact, it, it, it's, it, you know, rationalism is, uh, is a good thing. You know, we need, we need rational, uh, the rational concrete mm-hmm. mind to guide us through life. It's not so much that the rational person isn't cut for out for the ayahuasca ceremony it's that the rational person who has forgotten the nature of consciousness and energy and more intangible levels of spirit their rational mind will be deconstructed so that it can serve a higher purpose mm-hmm. I, I, I guess what i'm thinking of this um is that those who would rationalistically say this is you know this chemical may actually engage part of your subconscious that gives you vivid dreams or other kind of things that seem real, but it's actually your subconscious manifesting forward in, in horrifying ways. They can't explain the, the common experiences that people in a group have that happen external to you. Yeah, no, they certainly. I mean, they, there's, I'm sure that people have come up with ways of trying to explain how yeah. these, these group visions happen, but I wouldn't put it past people. But I, I, I think that you know, I, I've gone down with some pretty deep skeptics and one, I remember a scientist in particular that was down in one of my tours and by the end of the week, the first couple of ceremonies, he kept explaining away everything he saw. He went through the most hellacious experiences yeah. and the next day was still explaining them away. By the fourth ceremony, this man was trying to hurl himself into the teeth of the jungle screaming at God. Like he was saying yeah. like in a full on conversation with God and the next day he did not have the same <laughs> he didn't have the yeah. same ex- ex- being able to explain it away. So sometimes it takes a little bit more to break down people's barriers in these ceremonies, but by the end of the week this guy was uh in my mind like a much better scientist. You, you know it's funny some people have those kind of experiences maybe in a more toned down fashion even without taking ayahuasca. Uh, where they're alone in a room with God and they refuse to believe this and that and they try to throw up all these guards until they come out finally crying uncle. And, <laughs> yes. and in fact, one of, one of the more mundane ones that was fascinating not long ago was, of all people, Evil Knievel, who <laughs> fought against God, fought against you know, this, and he, evidently he had a knockdown drag out with God in a hotel room where he had turned him away his whole life and fought and fought and after about demolishing the room, he finally said, okay, I give my life over to you uh, in a hotel room. And actually, it wasn't he, he came on TV, talked about it, and then went along after that, he, he actually died uh, oh, after right. that. But um, there, there were two particularly strange descriptions in your ayahuasca ceremonies. And, and by the way, to conclude our last thought, your, your testimony adds... To, to my thinking, based upon the testimonies I've heard from others, and I'm a scientist by training. My doctorate's in engineering, and, and I tend to use scientific method and rationality. But the data I've seen uh, 
pretty much confirms to me that this is not even what we would consider an LSD kind of psychedelic experience or something of just mere mind expansion. There is something spiritual going on with the ingestion of these substances. Then the question comes, how do you understand of what nature, spiritual nature it is? And To me, that's the crux where it is with me. Uh, I don't think the jury's out anymore with me that there's something in the spirit realm that's going on with, with ayahuasca. But there were two particularly strange descriptions in your ayahuasca ceremony, which I did not know if you were describing literally or figuratively, because you use some very interesting figurative language in your book. Uh, but I have read very strange things from testimonies of people who, who have gone to these ceremonies. So I wanted to ask you, did an actual physical viper actually come out of you during the purging event? And did you really perceive your leader physically as resembling a hornet in appearance? Or can you explain what was really going on there? Sure. I mean, what, like I said, when you purge, oftentimes you will see symbolic visions that like at the moment they feel real and they look real. So when I vomited out a viper, I was vomiting stuff from my stomach. But what I saw and experienced and felt physically coming out of my mouth, it, it, it looked and felt to me like a snake. Of course, when I look into my bucket and I see the chunks, I realize that in a sense, I have just had a deeply uh, spiritual and symbolic experience of the the. the symbolism of a snake and death and all of that no so it wasn't a physical um viper it was the vision of the viper and also the sort of synesthesia or the like you know the blurring of the senses that comes during the purging Mm -hmm. that can make you feel like you're uh, barfing out a mountain you know what i mean (laughs) well you know what's interesting is because i've read other people's experiences in these ceremonies and they explain the exact same thing they said they saw a black viper swimming in their effluent when they when they perched, and I just really, think it's ironic that they describe it identically. I, I think it's because there's some there's some common things like spiders and snakes or whatever that like are are really common like fear symbols, you know. And like the snake yeah. is such a symbol of fear for us, and, and especially like in the Old Testament story when I think of the serpent, I sometimes like Joseph Campbell said, I feel like the serpent sometimes gets a bad rep, you know, and and that just the idea that a serpent represents. Uh, uh, evolution as it peels its uh, as it peels its skin off from itself by dragging itself along the rocks, and uh, simultaneously it's the, it's a venomous uh, predator. So it, I think the dual nature of the serpent as something that uh, it represents something about who we are and our nature and the lower urges that we have that are more predatorial and cunning, mm-hmm. and also the fact that we're in a sense, always being reborn and peeling off our skin and doing this dance of forgiveness and rebirth. Well, now what about the hornet business? You mentioned it at least twice in the book, that you looked at your shaman and he looked like a hornet. Well, he had actually, I mean, in my visionary field, he was no longer a person. I was looking at like a giant hornet. (laughs) Really? Mm. I mean, you know, that's not, you know, if, if I were to think of archetypes, okay, I might think of of a snake with something evil, okay? I can understand that because from the time we're taught in Sunday school on, we read about the serpent and, and all these things. But I don't tend, when I first think of a, like a Rorschach test of something evil, that I picture a hornet. And I wondered why you thought that image of all came. Oh, well, well I mean, I don't think, uh, I, I, I was definitely trying to depict the shaman. Like, one of the things shamans do is they constantly are singing, well, we'll get into this a little bit later, I'm yeah. sure, but the, the Akaros, which are the songs that they sing throughout the night, um, will 
cause them at the invocation of an Ikaro many times to, to shapeshift. So in your visionary field, the, the shaman will start singing a song, and that song will shift them into a jaguar. or a, And more or less, the, the reason that they're shifting into a particular animal has to do with a, a sort of particular uh, power animal nature spirit that they're trying to you know, embody, and there was something of the hornet that to me felt like a sort of protective sentinel, like, huh. you know, it was like paddling mm-hmm. us down river, and, and it was very, like, a, a very protective, fierce soldier-like energy that was watching right. over us. Now, does everybody else in your group see the same exact animal that these people turn into? Oftentimes, yes, not all the time. Sometimes people see the shamans appear as different things, and other times they're, the shaman will, you know, literally appear to everyone as an eagle or something like that. Um yeah. And everyone will be like, wow, did you see when he was an owl earlier or something like that? And everyone will be like, yeah, that was, you know, I couldn't believe it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that night in particular, we all saw him as a hornet. I mean, that was like a common experience in the group that first night. Well, you know, uh, I come from, you know, my influences are largely biblical in nature other than a lot of drive-in movies I've seen. So I guess there's a mixture there. But, <laughs> but, but when I think of hornets, now, I don't know how you would distinguish that from a yellow jacket or a wasp or whatever like that, but... Uh, hornets were used specifically, and they're rather strangely used in the Old Testament, as something that God used to drive the enemy away. Uh, he would send hornets against the other tribes, and it's mentioned a few times in the Bible, and never described, explained, why these hornets, and I assume they were spiritual beings, they could be, he was just harnessing the natural, like locust or hornets, you know, to, to drive out, but it, it seemed like they were spiritual beings. Uh, that were of some nature, but 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 actually did this. And then, of course, we see a, a very gruesome view in Revelation when you read about these beings that uh, look like locusts, mm-hmm. and they do tremendous carnage on people and tremendous damage, and they clearly sound as if they're spirit beings because they come out of an abyss. And uh, this is an area that I've done a lot of research in, and particularly about a a shamanic or maybe more of a sorcery would be a better description, event that occurs in Revelation chapter 8 that opens this abyss, and these creatures come out. So I was very curious to see if there was any connection at all uh, to why you had mentioned this particular character, because I found it rather unique. Um, But you mentioned these Akaro songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you said that they would, and that, that they're mentioned all the time in your book. It's a, it's a common thing uh, during the ceremony itself, particularly during your 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 darkest hours of going through the experience. Um, what role do they have on the effectiveness of the ayahuasca ceremony? How important are they uh, to what your experience is? Sure, I mean they're like uh, you know they're. Um they're these incredible musical tools, you know. They'll, they're a lot of times they're whistled like, um, <laughs> just like these little, they're these little melodies, and they're they're you just going. You just sounded like a hornet to me when you did that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's the exact one that he sang when I saw him as a hornet. <laughs> so uh, these are these are these they're they're like melodies that are often whistled or sung and they have sometimes they have words and sometimes they're just whistled and they're they're propelled with the shaking of a rattle called a shakapa and the rattle and the songs are the akaros are sung all night and they drive and create the the visionary space. 
Welcome back to the Future Quick Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Fast Bionic. Uh, because we really, all we can do is invite Mervin to tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. We've got to go. Later. Come back to our third segment tomorrow with Adam Ellenboss. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Yowzer. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And Tom, I don't know, I can't even think of a good middle name, Bionic. Okay. Well, we're with uh, Adam Ellenboss, the author of Fishers of Men, the Gospel of an Ayahuasca Vision Quest, mm-hmm. talking about a case study of a traditional Christian's embrace of ayahuasca shamanism and potential future impacts to society. We have to go now, and we'll come back and talk about it here on Future Quake. So they, they have the caros of the pink river dolphin and the pink river dolphin at Carl's will call in rivery watery dimensions where you're swimming through aqua animals and there's pink river dolphins and the shaman might morph into a pink river dolphin uh they have ikaros of the black jaguar of the you know of the um of the mother boa constrictor or there's all sorts of ikaros that open up various uh spirit guides and spirit realms where the, these animals or and also Christian ones that's one of the most amazing parts of it is that there's uh, you know so there's Buddhist ones and all sorts of Icaros that have been you know they become more and more diverse as you have more people coming in and sort of uh, mingling with the home culture and what the Icar- what kind of Christian ones are you referring to what what do they do well, they'll they'll sing songs that'll invoke the like the Christ energy. They'll literally in Quechua they'll call on Christ, and when that happens, you know all sorts of uh, incredible dimensions of Christian imagery, biblical imagery uh, will will come into your visionary field. And the many of the archetypes, of the you know I say myths, but I don't mean untruthful. I just uh-huh. mean the you know the core meaning of the stories that will come into. Your, and work with your life, and you'll be looking at your life against the measuring stick of, of more like Christian themes and symbols. Um, so, and, and, but I mean, again, like the more traditional, I guess, in the jungle that haven't been in, influenced by other cultures and religions from the world, those Icaros are still primarily based in like, um, specific relationships to specific plants that the, that the uh, shamanic doctors or practitioners mm-hmm. are, ingesting and these plants are thought to teach them these songs by the ingestion of them in their diet on a regular basis hmm. wow uh, and they come during your dreams like you'll be you'll when you're in the middle of a diet i've done a few of these plant diets and you'll wake up uh, in the middle of the night singing one of these songs and you know then forever you'll kind of know the song and it just kind of came to you while you were sleeping and then when you use it in an ayahuasca ceremony 
it will open up a very particular type of, of dimension of experience. Now, I'm assuming that when you take the ayahuasca, it makes you so much more hypersensitive spiritually that when they whistle one of these songs, it has a more pronounced effect. Oh my gosh, yeah. When they start, I mean, like, when they start whistling those songs sometimes, or when they start a new Icaro, people will just start screaming. Wow. But now, what I would guess, though, from that is that this this shows the power of music, either it's the vibrations of it or something that's part of our nuance, that, you know, some kind of organized tonal sounds or something like that does something with us vibrationally or otherwise. Would you guess to a lower, lesser extent, I think you alluded to this with the Christian example we used, that music has some kind of uh, effect spiritually with us, whether we recognize it or not? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I think of that, do you know, do you remember that, you know that song, and it repeats over and over, better is one day in his courts, better is one day in his house, and it goes over and yeah. over and over. And the more that that builds in a sort of rhythmic, when you have a thousand people in a worship uh-huh. service all singing that, it becomes a drum, in a sense, like a shamanic drum. And, uh, uh-huh. and it, or a it, mantra. Yeah, it's like a, yeah, and it, and it, and it, uh, it, inflates within us uh, our spiritual vision and opens our third eye or whatever it is that it does it, it connects us to spirit and then when we're open to spirit we're we're open to uh receiving teachings and truth that can that can change us you know really immediately i, I would consider that the holy spirit in in the best sense you know could, could it also happen in a dark way too Oh yeah, completely. If, if we that's listen to dark music, could also be like a negative Akaro too. Absolutely, that's like that's the whole premise of uh, you know of 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 shamanism too is that the 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 universal energies within the the realm that we are in, like dualism, uh, the same the same techniques of ecstasy can be used for egotistical purposes to manipulate to power you know to use power and to cultivate power and it's like star wars you know the jedis harness the force just like the darth vader does you know well are you familiar with dr rick strassman and his work with dmt yeah yeah i i I really appreciate his work for sure yeah uh you know we, we talked about his on our show and most of their experiences were pretty terrifying i think most of them had had to do some kind of counseling or have some kind of support group after that because they saw some pretty horrifying stuff. So I'm assuming that some of these portals can open up pretty negative kind of harmful things as well as positive things as well too. I think it's like the one thing, I mean, there's a fine distinction I think between like the negative and the positive because we, we all in ayahuasca ceremony, the shamans are in a sense singing songs to open up things inside of us that need to be examined and looked at. Um, the, the thing that I think is a little bit different about DMT and, and Dr. Strassman's studies is that you're talking about a blast of DMT that, A, doesn't have the benefit of carrying with it a purgative like the vine. Mm-hmm. So you're just you're purely using DMT. Well, the, the patient, if they see anything... Um, are not not necessarily going to have the bodily chance to scream or burp or poop it out, you know. Mm, interesting, um, yeah. So you know, I yeah. mean, I I'm not a fan of DMT, but only because I believe that uh, it's it's almost like you know in the in the jungle, a lot of shamans say this too that the it's like you take the leaf and just extract out of it the vision. Well, you have a you have the visionary realm that's basically being injected through you and blasted through you like a rifle, but you don't have the context of guidance of ceremonial songs and of the purgative uh, healing properties of the vine. 
Hmm, interesting. But, you know, that's a hallmark of science. They'll find something they don't understand and try to harness it with complete lack of knowledge of what's going on. You know, we have nature that does fusion all the time in the sun that warms all of us, and they'd like to take that little element out so they can see how many people they could kill at once with it. So that's, <laughs> yeah. a, that's a pretty common experience. Um, you saw what, what I would call evil creatures, and I think you alluded to them somewhat in your ceremony on page 160 of your book. Mm-hmm. When that happened, what did your shamans then tell you was the cause of the experience and, and, and the overall response? I think they mentioned on page 163 of your book. Can you share with us about that? Sure. I mean, I have to like, uh, I have to like, uh, let me page into my book real quick here and just make sure I know which specific creatures we're talking about, so I can be real specific in my um, in my response. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, w- one of the things that they were talking about here is. I had a, a, a sort of series of visions that included all sorts of apocalyptic visions, and the creatures that I saw in those visions really represented the pit of evil, I guess you could say, in man and the self-destructive tendencies of our species. And I saw those as all sorts of different, you know, demons and uh, dark entities. And right, um, I think well, just a couple of you describe here. You said. Um uh, I felt evil. You said, I saw a squadron of foreign objects fl- flying through my body like UFOs. I felt evil shapes and laughter coursing through my bloodstream. Um, vines grew on my orifices and wrapped around my throat, strangling me. A creature with reptilian eyes and barbed spike dreadlocks kept crept behind my shoulders and then peered around my neck and looked into my eyes. And then his claws dug into your to his ears. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean those those experiences are probably and I would say the chapter that is the, probably the darkest visionary chapter of the book. And all of those for me they were explained I mean the, the original question was what how did the shamans or what did they tell me was the cause of those creatures or where they came from or what they represented? Yeah. I, I, well, in fact I can even read it here if you want to comment on it. Uh Ethan your uh, your guide at the time says when you spent all that time condemning others with the Bible, blaming your mother and father for your happiness, you created your own private hell. Now you're cleaning yourself up. You're releasing all the blame and judgment. Yeah, that's right. So that's exactly, and so there you go. That's that's how it was explained to me. And I, I really resonated with it at the time for sure. And and uh, I have other ways of thinking about a lot of the, the sort of evil in general now looking back at like 80 ceremonies and seeing a lot of that same stuff come up in many other instances and I think what I would say in general about those experiences is that they represent uh, within you something really important so for me at that time it was definitely about a whole stint that I had gone through as an evangelical and you know and there was a time when I was you know exploring all that Baptist stuff and where I was really using the Bible and trying to convert people. And there's a short period of time where I was like a, pretty much a sort of you know, fundamentalist, I guess. And uh, also terrified of like 2012 and the end of the world and reading like the Jenkins LaHaye Left Behind series and all of that stuff. And not to say that I'm not interested in what we're doing to the planet and that I don't see a major uh, something going on right now, but the obsession with it and the use of fear to try and mm-hmm. make people believe certain things. I was getting bombarded with a series of images and visions that were representative of that fear within myself. But, but you know, it's interesting. You, you, they, they told you that, that your, your cause was that you were condemning others with the Bible. I never really saw that talked about in your book. 
Yeah, unless that's you didn't get into it, that, that no, you no. are a real Bible thumper and condemning others. And, and, and why is exhorting people from the Bible, why would that be something that would cause evil? Well, I personally, I, I can't say that everybody who uses the Bible w- would be using it as a weapon, although I, yeah. un- unfortunately that's been my experience with many Christians. I, I just had a preacher the other day get in touch with me who had read my book in like Santa Monica, yeah. and uh, and you know he was he came to me saying he wanted to talk to me about things in my book and ended up using the Bible as like this this weapon trying to convince me that I was uh, yeah. in league with the devil. So I mean that's in a sense I I did a lot of that kind of stuff like trying to convince people that their position was wrong and that their their fundamental view of God or their relationship yeah. with God was flawed because of things that I was finding in scripture and I felt I feel like that was really a uh, you know, something that's something that I ended up um, pur- purging during these experiences. Huh. You, you, you know, the, the way that I think Tom and I would probably describe people who are predatory and useful, that are what Jesus called Pharisees. Uh, you know, even though the Pharisees were a particular sect, um, the whole Pharisaical idea was when you cross the line into just trying to do this to harm other people, uh, you know. Um, how did you become disillusioned with your ayahuasca lodge, lodge and the leadership there? Well, I, I mean, that's, I think, one of the great parts of the story because here in many ways you have, uh, you know, the story is like my young, a young man's religious quest and spiritual quest for an authentic connection to God. And, uh, and I think what you can see very subtly happening is in the book you get this feeling that, oh no, this guy's just substituting one form of fundamentalism for another. Now he's just an ayahuasca fundamentalist, you know? And uh, he's just creating a, a new religion out of uh, his use with this substance and this, this Amazonian sacrament. And he's making his relationship with these shamans, like they're they're just taking the place of his preacher father, who he's yeah. disappointed with. And, and uh, I had, and, and in some ways, shamans are very clever, smart people. And so there was a bit of my disillusionment that I think was provoked by the shamans, but I also really found out that the shamans had egos and were real people who could disappoint me just as readily as my father had. And um, I mean, I won't go, I won't ruin all the details or get into the, the juicy details, but the point is that I did have experiences where I saw these shamans' egos. I saw cliques forming just like at the churches and who's who's in better with the church leaders and who's closer friends with the pastor, the youth pastor, or you know, same thing, who's closer yeah. with the shaman. And so I saw all that stuff happening and I saw myself participating in it and starting to revisit themes from earlier in the whole, you know, Christian Baptist stuff that I was doing. So that really helped me sort of say, okay, whether this is me or the or these shamans and this place is just this this terrible place and I got to go find a, a different place to drink ayahuasca, I tried to leave that behind and mm-hmm. just realize that the spiritual journey is um it, you have to release attachments and putting yeah. anything up on a, on a pedestal between you and God, you know. Right. Anybody spiritually seeking has to finally learn that their guru or whoever it is they look at have feet of clay, and it, it will retard your ability to move forward. But what's really sad is these people, from from what I read in your book, pretty much devoted their life to trying to advance in their spiritual ascendancy. Uh, you know, living there for long periods of time in the in the the deprived conditions of the jungle and getting one with nature and going through untold numbers of ceremonies and other things. And you would have thought if there was something really, really, you know, wonderful about this that they would they would have purged themselves. 
of these kind of behaviors. Did, did that seem strange to you after their devotion to this over many, many years that that still was present with them? Um, at first it did. At first it was really disillusioning and disappointing. But then now having gone through about 80 ceremonies myself, um, I understand that in many ways, like, you, you know, this, you can't, I, my guess is that the the journey of being a soul in reality is uh, has been going on for some time for most of us and probably continue going on. And I, I don't know what about reincarnation or anything. I just mm-hmm. have the feeling that soul is on a is on a journey that's bigger than mm-hmm. than just this human life. So are we saying we're slow learners? Is that what you're saying? I think so. And I think yeah. that like uh, the more that I've I've stumbled and fallen here, I've written a book about this big transformational experience, and and uh, you know I'm still I, I I would I've transcended a lot of you know, big things like addiction for sure and whatever. Yeah. But, but I still have things that I, I have to get down on my hands and knees sometimes in ceremonies and and barf into a bucket about stuff that I thought I was done with. You know, huh. Huh. and I think that's the that's the journey of uh, you know, it's like we all have to have our own cross to carry. And I think if anything, um, I'm relieved to know that shamans are are still just people because uh, I think. I think it unites us in in a struggle and in a um, an ambition that's greater than uh, that's greater than some form of achievement. When you get down on your knees and those kind of things, I mean, we can relate. We have the same things we work too. Do you ever just in, instead of barfing a bucket, you ever just think about calling out to Jesus? And you know what? what? Say? I do. It's funny. I mean, I I, I feel bad because I've now I've made it seem like it's just barfing and screaming. But sometimes it's laughter and and yeah. crying and and sometimes it's just thanking God and and being you know, it's it's religious, it's religious experience. And when you say, you know, when you, you guys know this, just like anyone, there are certain moments in your life where, when you're in in the grips of of wrestling with your angels and demons and all that, and you say, "Oh my God," you realize it's not a cliche. You know, you're really calling out to God authentically. And those are some of the most beautiful moments and ceremonies where you say something out loud to the universe and to God, and you realize that it really just came from your heart. And sometimes that's as good as puking or screaming. But I'm glad to hear that it's up there with with puking. <laughs> that it's the sin of that lofty region. Yeah. But, but, but you know your uh, your comment about the limitations of of your teachers just makes me think all the more about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. In that people have analyzed his work and his words for a couple thousand years, and People, they may criticize Christianity frequently or all the kind of mistakes made by the followers and adherents, but they have a hard time really criticizing Jesus himself. Uh, and it seems like there's this continuous trait of total selflessness, uh, total purity uh, in devotion other, to cause. Other centeredness yeah. central, as a central characteristic. And complete genuineness about who he is that other leaders today just can't seem to hold a candle to him. Mm. Yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, it, it's interesting because I, I I feel like I had a bit of that deconstructed in me in these ceremonies and just realizing that, you know, some of the visions I write about in the book, I think that are some of the most powerful are the ones dealing with the person of Jesus. And uh, my understanding now of Jesus is is that you know that that man, whoever he was, was quite a, a brilliant. Um, a brilliant shining star. I think what makes him unique is his place and culture and his and the time, the timing of his arrival. And you know, that's a part of. I mean, the '60s are in a sense like this has the same numinous appearance, and the internet has the same strange timeliness as something like Jesus. 
Um, but we're more fascinated when uh, uh, something in history helps shift us through the, through a character or a person because we like you know we like to consider the actors on the stage to to all to the most important ones to be human rather than periods mm-hmm. of time or concepts or scientific discoveries or um, so I think once you realize that Jesus was just a, a you know a person and and that he was someone who was teaching us a great deal about how to bear and carry our crosses and and how to uh to relate to god and and how to uh you know realize our divinity and that you see the example of his life i think it's it's something where you you have to stop idolizing jesus and start learning to to embody his teachings in your own life and and you know that's that for me that's kind of where real christianity begins and uh, the the Jesus cult ends, I guess. Now, now that would differ a lot from the kind of traditional teaching that you that you learn, particularly in the Baptist church uh, where you grew up. I would assume that'd be very different. You also had a different belief that emerged regarding the second coming in your book. Can you capsulize what you now believe about the second coming of Christ? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I I really believe uh, in my visions. I I feel like I really had a strong understanding of you know, and Jesus spoke of of a of a time of second coming or of a time of of uh, you know of revelation or or you know being truth being disclosed in a big profound way. And you know whether he was talking about something that was coming you know in a shorter period of time and well, that's all debatable. But I think in a greater sense we do deal with uh you know g- great periods of of change in life where a major age is shifted um and we deal with it in minor ways like the 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 sudden appearance of a worldwide internet you know i mean that's huge and and uh, so that in a sense is is a, is a sign of the times that we're in. But we, when we think of the second coming, typically we think of like Jesus coming down in the clouds and everything like that. And I, through these ayahuasca ceremonies, I, I really didn't understand the second coming and besides the Left Behind series, didn't have too many uh, thoughts of my own about it. But this led me to believe that the second coming is all about uh, an emergence of transformative culture, of looking at how to rethink how we're doing things, everything from the economy to the the management of uh, sustainable energies and, uh, you know, just an entire revisioning of how we do things and how we conceptualize not only each other but time and space itself. Um mm-hmm. These experiences really open your mind to something that's, uh, you know, and, and you feel as though it's coming. And it's, I don't think it's any coincidence that there are thousands of people now more and more and more every year that are going at like pilgrimages to, to go down to the south and like drink this incredible medicine. And, you know, and now there's, there's like more and more and more thousands of people who are waking up to some of the most profound spiritual experiences that exist on our planet right now. I mean, mm-hmm. there have been profound experiences with us all along, but this one has an ability to wake a, a people up from really deep slumber really quickly. Well, let, so let, I, me, let me, if you don't mind, because I've got some more things I want to ask you about. If I no, could go summarize, because you, you summarized it in your book here. You said you asked questions about the second coming, what it was on page 170. You said the answer I received from Jesus in each and every vision has been the same. The, the second coming is real. It is the emergence of a united force of a transformative culture aimed at the construction of a more loving, more harmonious planet, uh, a storyline 
that this moment of history asks us to believe in evolution and to work for the good rather than attempt to transcend the illusion of pain and material uh, reality and that ayahuasca's role in the storyline is a special one uh, as a new it's a, in its brew a new kind of sacrament is revealed a holy healing technology uh, and then uh, a paragraph later she summarized she said once people are exposed to the spiritual realm the next step they will need to take is to connect with the Christ consciousness within it the holy spirit of god's evolutionary work and creation as this happens one will end a new one will begin one era of human consciousness will be born of as something new uh, and while some may initially choose to ignore the spiritual reality emerging eventually every knee will bow and every tongue proclaim the universal love is uh, that universal love is our king and queen our god our mother and father our gospel now that belief of the second coming as you know because you were raised in this culture deviates from the traditional doctrine christian doctrines uh, on that belief the third one that I happened to notice when I was reading your book was about sin. Uh, when you're, I know your shamans told you that there was no such thing as sin that, that existed. And something I was wondering about this is that the, the entity who represented Jesus to you, that came to visit to you, you know, made these kind of teachings to you. Uh, and what we talk about on our show a lot of times, a lot of times we're very, very critical of the Christian community and our in our talking about how easily they accept information from sources they think they trust, whether it's the mainstream media or certain preachers or certain kind of things where they get information, they don't really think about it deeply and they just take the worldview they're given about countries, about people groups that we're supposed to hate or not hate or whatever, and they just take it at face value. Uh, and, and we talk a lot about people who have had encounters with deceptive spirits, yeah, like mm-hmm. the Bible says, it would come as an angel of light. Even Satan would come as that, but then he would be something else. Have you ever thought in the back of your mind that some of these teachings, which so deviate from traditional teaching, that the person who represented himself to you may not be all of who they say they are? Is that is that? I know it was a very positive experience for you, and in your gut you probably feel very much like this was who it was. But is there a possibility that, that there could be some deception in some of this? Well, I mean, I think it's it's an interesting thing. I think the, the it's an interesting question. The at the core of shamanic experience is a koan that I really love, and it's the idea that anything that is possible is true. Um, and it, it's uh, it's one of those statements. Anything that's possible is true. Um, that doesn't make a lot of sense to people who are um, have only had really the, the the most of their experiences in the linear you know dimension and when you're in a dimension that's non-linear um and where time operates a little differently that's more quantum mechanical um possibility is uh, an interesting thing uh, is it possible that that all my experiences were demons or were deceptions or something like that of course it's completely possible however the way consciousness works is not about probabilities and possibilities and 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 sort of like if there's a if there's a possibility, then let's start examining the probabilities and then start, you know, deriving which truth is real and which isn't through rational arguments and so forth. But rather that what is possible is true. So where you place your attention and focus is what you invoke. So if you, if, if I were to spend my time thinking of the ayahuasca experience as deceptive, in fact, the the nature of consciousness would be to manifest the dark the dark spirits and energies that are there 
and they could co- literally come in through the backward passage of time and make my experiences exactly that. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, middle name deleted, Bionic. Okay. Um, hang with us. Uh, if some of you all are uncomfortable in some of the territory we're charting, uh, hang with us this segment and the next segment uh, uh, are ones where we, we address these issues from a, from a Christian standpoint and things. And uh, it was a very uh, decent, respectful uh, discussion, and I really appreciate Mr. Allen Boss for that. Mm-hmm. also appreciate Murph, who can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. We have to go. All right, man. Come back for the last segment tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And Tom uh, Pharmakia, learning about it, Bionic. Yeah, that was sort of an awkward kind of little name, but I'll give you credit for it. Sorry. We're, we're this week with uh, our guest, Adam Ellenboss, the author of the book Fishers of Men, The Gospel of an Ayahuasca Vision Quest. And we're talking about a case study of a traditional Christian's embrace of ayahuasca shamanism and potential future impacts to society. This is an issue we've talked about a lot in the past, and this is mm-hmm. the first time we've had someone from a Christian upbringing who has embraced ayahuasca. And we think our listeners can see a glimpse of what the future holds and mm-hmm. maybe connect the dots together what's going on from this yeah. discussion. Mr. Allen Boss has been great. Uh, you'll enjoy this next segment. It's very challenging. Uh, and then we'll wrap it up here at Future Quake. So I wouldn't focus on those things as possibilities, specifically because I realize that every moment uh, faith is, is uh, the ability to uh, you know, understand the truth. Everything that's possible is true. And so where you place your focus is, it depends, it, everything depends upon it. it. It sounds like it's sort of like defining your own reality. Yeah, uh, it is. In a, in a sense, it is. But at the same time, like, you know, again, the, 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 the word your reality, you know, and just to understand that a lot of people uh, run around using that phrase to create your own reality in ways that, uh, are sometimes really selfish, and so you know it's a to, to stand in an absolute uh, relative relationship with God is uh, is that's that's the spiritual journey, and so it's uh, it's it's a difficult thing to simultaneously listen for the voice of God while um, while also understanding that uh, you can't just go making everything up. You really do have to listen. Yeah. Well, the reason why I, I asked about that when you were explaining what I understood you to say just now about how uh, it's what you look for. If you look for something positive, you get something positive, or if you think it's deceptive, that, that they can come in and do that, is that 
an example I thought of was, was, for example, the Nazi SS. They were a very spiritual group of people. They had a lot of spiritual ceremonies they did. They believed in gods and evoking. And their act of sending the Jews to the ovens, they believed, was something that was virtuous and for the betterment of humanity. And they believed spiritually they were doing so. In fact, they believed that the Jews would actually reincarnate into something better. So they were doing them a favor as well as the rest of humanity. So their, so their spirits, by their own thoughts, were clean and pure in what they were doing. Uh, and, and to me, that's a testament to uh, a little bit of what the Bible talks about, the depravity of man, uh, that sort of goes counter to more of a New Age thinking that looks at the godhood in man. Uh, it sees the spark of the divine in every person, uh, whereas a biblical view would say that we're all created in the image of God, but yet we have a depravity there that makes its way, even with a clean conscience sometimes. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm certain you wouldn't say that was a positive experience uh, that they did, uh, you know, through the Holocaust and things like that. But spiritually, they believe that they were doing something better. So, you know, in the, in the Bible often, the people, when they encountered spirit beings, they would actually put the spirit beings to a test where they would actually test them and, and see what they were saying, what message they were bringing to see if they were from God or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I see in all forms of religious expression, including traditional kinds of Christian expression, where people are having touch with the other side, and I believe they're legitimate connections, uh, mm-hmm. that they aren't, all, there's some hokum out there, but I think a whole lot of them these days are real connections with the spirit side. But the old process of actually testing the spirits has somehow gone by the wayside. And I'm not saying this to say that what you had was deception or was was negative or whatever. Like I'm not. That's not the point I'm making. The point I was wondering is, is that did that ever cross your mind to have an independent source to verify the message that you were getting i'm sure it felt comfortable in your spirit in job with your spirit but did it was there some other means by which you could verify i mean it's it's of eternal consequence whether we understand right what we hear from the spirit world or not we got one shot to get it right and we want to make sure that that all that's something that unites every one of us in our search for the reality of god is that we want to make sure we get it right because the principles are much more than mortal at stake. So, w- was there anything in your mind that went and said, "I need to test this teaching and see if it's something that really holds water beyond what a liquid I drank told me?" Yeah, I mean, that's those are those are you know those are really good questions. I uh, I guess I would say that I I would disagree. I would say that there's nothing. I, I at least my experiences lead me to believe that there there is nothing eternal at stake, and that that might just be like a fundamental disagreement, you know, yeah. that that we have. But I I think. Um, so whether or not you know the 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 uh, Nazis in this case were doing the Jews a favor or not, um, to me is like uh, you know uh, I would say of course that they weren't you know that, right and that I knew you would and I knew you would but the, the point I was making was that they felt in their consciousness that they were doing something virtuous and uh-huh. they were spiritual people they had very active spirit life and talked about their connections with the spirit world, and they were doing what they were told what they thought was for the best of humanity. Yeah. Uh, But we're on the outside looking at it thinking, how in the world could they have done that and been so deceived? And I tend to think we're all vulnerable to that unless we have some other kind of external standard to be able to evaluate our experiences. I just wondered if if you had looked at that at all. No, I think that's really. I mean, I, I again, like I, I don't. I am. I'm not able to externalize or separate 
um, God from the particulars. So, like, in that instance, like, the way I would look at it would be, did the, the Nazis, for example, might have thought that they were doing these people a favor, you know, and, and helping them evolve in a quicker way. And, uh, you know, my experiences have led me to believe that that may have been true and not true at the exact same time. The paradoxes that you experience in these other realms of consciousness are such that, you know, when the Jews died in that way, could because it was uh, maybe in some ways wicked or, or whatever, um, what I've seen of death and, and rebirth in these ceremonies suggests to me that um, that the the you know the position of of where you go when you die is not a, a frightening thing um and that since ultimately there is nothing at stake in my point of view um the nazis didn't ha they had the misperception that there was something at stake and to me that's that is sin it's the perception that there's something at stake mm -hmm. and since people live their lives and d decide to make decisions. Oh, we're going to help these people evolve to a better state by killing them. That's the illusion of, of sin, the illusion that there is a better or worse or a place you can get to or a external source that can validate whether you're right or not or wrong or not. And to me, it's like those that kind of view of reality is what causes us to make decisions based on arrogance or fear or mm -hmm. other things. And that's why people take other people's lives and do mm -hmm. crappy things. Well, you know, actually... That is what Nazism taught, as well as Marxism on, on both the left and the right, was, was relativistic teaching that there is no right and wrong. It is what is actually uh, uh, in the best interest in the here and now for, for the largest body of people. So relativism actually has been used as the excuse for large-scale reductions and eliminations of people, certainly uh, things like abortion and other kind of things that have gone on that have caused large-scale loss of life throughout history were based upon a moral relativism and also a belief, and in, in, in like you said, not that there was eternal consequence. Uh, they believed in a, in a uh, theory of reincarnation where there would be repeated cycles over and over again. Now, a traditional Christian teaching would, would say that the one who would tell you that there is not an eternal consequence to your actions would be the deceiver and would be the adversary, and it would be in his interest to convince you that there is no consequence, a consequence to your actions. Mm -hmm. That's sort of an age-old teaching. So, uh, And I'm sure you heard that because you went to Christian college and all these other kind of things like that. So um, the position you're, you, you've taken is one that's, that's sort of counter to the to at least a Christian teaching, and not just even Christian teaching, Judaism and others, is that there there is a point of judgment where we're held accountable for the actions that we take. There is a point when we ultimately will be held accountable. And whatever the spirit being is that's telling you that you're not is one that wants to deceive you into the same judgment that he's going to experience. Mm. So have, have you sort of divorced yourself from that cosmology into another one based upon your experience or your vision? I think so. I mean, my I guess my view is pretty much the opposite. It's that if there is a de deceiver, then the deceiver is definitely the one who would suggest that there is something eternal at stake because the eternity is here right now and the eternity is at stake in every moment. So I I believe that that you can make decisions that are you know, in effect, better or worse, but that's coming from the perspective of one space in time. That doesn't mean that the relative is without the absolute or that the absolute is without the relative. It's mm -hmm. just that we, we have to learn to listen 
to uh, the voice of the absolute in every single moment and realize that eternity is at stake right here, right now in time and space where we seem divorced from it. Okay. You, you say listen to the absolute. Who is the absolute? I don't. Uh, well, I wouldn't say like you know who as much as I would say that you know I mean all of the above. You know the the absolute is if you if you listen to the creative forces or the divine spark within you, um, you know then then hopefully you're doing your best and you're you know you're walking your path and doing the best you can. And that's the thing about redemption is that maybe the Nazis really did think they were doing their best and maybe that they were they thought they were doing all this stuff. From my perspective, it seems completely atrocious. What I know about grace is that ultimately, whether the Nazis have to go through some kind of purgative experience like a, a, a metaphorical lifetime worth of purging in some other place or whatever it is i know that eventually that experience will be a redemptive part of their journey just like every mistake i've ever made willfully or or unconsciously has been toward the toward the redemption and ultimate of uh, you know evolution of my soul hmm. okay you know redemption is the kind of word that's normally used in a Christian context, and in any kind of, even a generic business redemption, there's always the object of redemption, and then there's the redeemer. There's someone who pays the price for the redemption. And in the view that's now evolved in your cosmology, in the redemption process, who or what is the, re the redeemer that accomplishes the redemption that you're talking about in every person? Well, it's as simple as, you know, working with schizophrenic people, I learned a lot about this because schizophrenic people are oftentimes dissociating themselves uh, co constantly and seeing themselves in various fragments of themselves. We all do that all of the time, except for we have the illusion of a strong enough center or we created a strong enough center through uh, the, the conditioning of our life or through karma or through blessings or through curses or whatever. I mean, but we, we have a strong enough center that we assume that it, what is happening to us is happening from either something that we're doing to ourselves or is coming into us from an external force. But the truth is that in every single moment, you are all that you can ever be and all aspects of self are one. And so when you encounter something like redemption, what you're encountering is the uh, unification of two things in yourself that had been deconstructed or marginalized or seen as separate, and they suddenly become one. And that does not mean that an external force is doing it. Some other third party within yourself could be doing it. But the unification of the opposites into the oneness and that reintegrates us and makes us feel whole again, I call that process or that force or that person within you or that external force, an angel, a helper, a preacher or something, I call that, you know, God's redemption. Okay. But you don't see the Jesus himself performing that function as a redeemer himself, which is sort of the central tenet of Christianity. Well, it's the central tenet of some Christians, you know, Christianity. Okay. But I, I would say that, you know, for in general, I feel like the idea that Jesus was the ultimate signifier of redemption is the the extreme anti-Christian point of view and the one that makes Jesus into a false idol. Hmm. Okay. So, but you still believe that there is a, a God, per se, an external, personal God? Uh, I guess if I had to define myself like doctrinally, I'd be a, like a panentheist, which is someone who sees God as both completely am, imminent, am, eminent, and transcendent at the exact 
same time. Okay. All right. Well, I, l let me ask you about the future because that's future quake. That's the main thing we're interested in. We see more and more information come up in the news uh, about people having more experiences. You mentioned thousands and thousands of people uh, going through this process itself. We read more and more articles on it, and, and we're keenly interested because we think it's going to be an important story in the future and have, a, have an impact on our society. What do you think uh, is going to be the impact of the ayahuasca phenomena on society in the future? Well, hopefully we understand the way, I mean, my, my hope anyway is that we, we start to understand the incredible responsibility that's given to us spiritually in every moment of every day to, to walk our talk and to really, um, to listen for the voice of, of love in our lives to, to like inform how we make decisions and how we unify otherwise disparate parts of ourselves and become whole as a society as people in our relationships and i think ayahuasca is a really unique teacher that can come in and and uh you know it teaches us that just like prayer and life in the church i think uh for many christians even the ones i just would say oh they're all anti-christian because of a particular doctrinal point of view i mean that's you know that that's just mm -hmm. in a sense me you know me talking about doctrine i i also think that one of the things that ayahuasca could do for us is to just help us see the good things that we have in common more than trying to figure out the 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 sort of evil basis that that got us into the jam or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you think like maybe the Republican and, and Democrat leaders could go behind closed doors with a bottle of ayahuasca and actually come out with a budget or actually do something <laughs> cooperatively yeah, for once? No, no, <laughs> seriously, do you think that uh what what kind of examples of tangible changes in society do you expect down the road if this truly grows or or what you expect will happen you know well, in a generation I'm or so well, I mean, I think for one thing, one thing that a lot of people are starting to intuit and understand is that the the, the typical divisions of like liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, that, it, that that there are deeper forces at work called greed and power, and that those things are really, I think, more at play in the current problems politically than um, than who's in office or. Uh, you know what ideologies are at play because I, I really think that wealth and power and uh, uh, those kinds of things are are much more of a problem for us right now than we, we actually you know, refer else. to them by the gods behind them uh, to Mammon and Bacchus. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Are the, those are you talk about gods in America. Those are the two number one gods in America. In the Christian community, we like to call America a Christian country, or, or some do. But uh, on our show, we believe that Mammon and Bacchus are truly the, the two top gods in our top ten list in America, uh, just by judging the lifestyles of the average American, even, in fact, the average Christian uh, in, in these kind of things. So, you know, we, we certainly agree with that. Do, do you think that some of the terminology, like some of the terms like you use talking about your experience, some of the new terms that have come into your life will become more commonplace in your generation as people have more and more of this shared experience uh, and they you know, would I, refer to that based upon people's time spent in a, you know this plant product based spirit world entry that well, it I will actually change the way we communicate and shared thoughts 
This is probably one of my favorite interviews I've done so far, pr- primarily because I feel like you you have a, you've asked such smart questions that have that challenge the language that both Christians use and that someone like myself, a former quest- a Christian, is very purposely like I'm very purposely using specific Christian phrases yeah. in a, in contexts that make people rethink the definitions and say like oh that's not what I know it to be and so this debate can ensue and people can. At the very least, uh, you know, process their their faith walk in a new way, mm-hmm. um, and and I think that uh, in the future, though, the language uh, that people use to describe these things, uh, I don't see language as holding the same power anymore, which I think is kind of a good thing because uh, with the internet and the advent of, of of the world wide web, we have you know a YouTube video explodes in two days and the language that a person uses then gets circulated uh, among so many demographics so quickly that it doesn't become the property of any particular point of view or intellectual bent uh, you know like it, it might have used to if you were going to a school and a professor had a particular way of talking about things or a particular language set and you kinda came from his school um, I think that language is moving too quickly to, to be set in stone anymore, which is, I think is a good thing because it's going to cause us to continually unify separate paradigms because the language we'll be using to describe separate ter- paradigms is co- going to be consistently the same. Well, there's also the yang part that will actually destroy any progress, and that's called texting, where we actually <laughs> have the destruction of all rules of English yeah. and everything that you were painstakingly oh. learned in school. That will actually destroy any kind of like super fast advances you're talking about as well too. So, uh, yeah. we we may have all sorts of new words in our vernacular from the ayahuasca shared experience, but we won't be able to put subjects and uh, verbs together That's or objects. True. So IDK IDK. It, it, it may be an ayahuasca <laughs> world is the only world where you can communicate and yeah. complete thoughts yeah. because we've lost it here with with our current like technology. Yeah. Can, can I ask you one question? You, you seem like a, a very um, uh, person comfortable with yourself and, and the questions we've had. You know, some people will be offended by, and you understand we're just we're inquisitors and seekers and inquiring information. There was something that came up, and you probably saw it in one of the last questions I asked. And I, I have to ask you because we are also very, very interested in the spirit world, and we talk about it every week. And a lot of times our thoughts differ from a lot of sometimes the other Christian audiences that that we have that listen to our show. But you mentioned in your book episode uh, where, where you talked about voices you heard in your head at certain stages, your particular low points. Um, and then you talked about an episode toward the end of the book where you were you were working with the with the schizophrenic community, their, their living quarters, and there was a patient that was having an sort of an event experience. And one of the things you mentioned was was this concept of him being demon possessed came up, and you said, "Well, what if he is?" And, and you sort of entertain this idea. Many of the spiritual experiences you described in your book, and all the harrowing experiences you had in your life, whether you're under ayahuasca or just living regular life with uh, drug addiction, other kind of things, um, in the destructive behaviors that you had in your life, and I think you readily admit, you know, the first twenty something years of your life was a pretty destructive path. Um, are consistent with the characteristics of people that we have encountered, and particularly my co-host here, Tom, with, with people who later have discovered have, have had some kind of demonic attack, either demonic uh, possession or oppression or something like that, and have actually experienced freedom, particularly the destructive behavior, uh, you know, through the name and authority of Jesus Christ. They've been actually had deliverance. And it's, believe me, it's been the kind of events in the spirit world 
similar to what you talked about in your book, your ayahuasca experience. And my co-host is actually a lot more more experience than that. Have you ever entertained the possibility that you maybe during your, those dark parts of your life had some kind of demonic oppression or attack or influence? Yeah, absolutely. Because you know the thing is, when you're in these the the grips of purging those periods of your life, like when I when I purged uh, the addictive. Uh, you know the addictive baggage of you know being a methadone addict for a while and sex addict and all this stuff. Uh, what you're dealing with in ceremonial visionary space uh, is the the coalescence of drugs, the motivations for drugs, motivations for drugs that come from your father and your grandfather and your genetics or or your family spiritual trajectory or whatever you want to call it, and when you see the face of these things, you're you're looking at entities and and demons in these in these spaces. I mean, I, I I'm not uh, you know I'm definitely I never would have you know said like oh you've just got demons because you're yeah. addicted. Like those are the yeah. spirits of alcohol. I've heard Christians say right. that when I was in the church, and I always thought yeah the spirits of alcohol, buddy, whatever. He's just addicted to, to, to alcohol. It's not like you have to spiritualize it. Yeah. But this this is exactly that, and and I think it made me realize that that's what I do treasure and cherish about those Pentecostals in the Christian Church. I feel like Pentecostals in the Christian Church could be the first ones to really embrace some of this ayahuasca paradigm, specifically because they already have a spiritualized view of reality that is like, you know, that understands the sort of mythic, uh, imagistic dimensions of our demons, yeah. and that they're real things that possess us and take hold of us. Yeah. And I had to go through. Uh, what I would consider, you know, a forms of exorcism in the jungle. That's exactly what they're called, too. You know, it's a mm-hmm. forms of spirit possession and shamans that are helping you. Uh, with the bigger ones, they'll sometimes take an hour singing and blowing smoke on you, and you know, mm-hmm. performing all sorts of rituals to get you finally mm-hmm. to release a, some kind of beast from within. You know, right? Well, you know, the, the crisis, and we have to close here. We're in our interview, but you know, the crisis those people will have when they encounter this and and I, and I think in society over the next generation ayahuasca is going to be uh, a major uh, fork in the road for society uh, to deal with in our generation and those who come from that Pentecostal background they may be the ones who first accept the reality the, the that there's something legitimate to it uh, because of their own experience but the challenge you're going to have is that the the most careful of those people were taught scripturally to use those entries in the spirit world and the power with it through the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. And that was always the portal that was used. And in fact, even beyond that, to having a relationship with him, because as it talks about the seven sons of Sceva, they tried to use the name of Jesus to cast out demons, and the demons said, I never heard of him, and sent them out packing. Uh, so that's going to be the challenge they have, is that are they going to have to give up the centrality of Jesus Christ his deity, his power and authority over these demons to, to, to go into some kind of experience like that. And I think that's going to be the question for society. But I want to thank you for such a thought-provoking book. And I have mm-hmm. about five or six questions. I still really important ones I want to ask you, but it's going to have to wait for another time. But um, thank you for a lot of sleepless nights. I stayed up a lot of nights reading this book. <laughs> and, oh, uh, man. And I appreciate you coming on our show. We try to create an environment where people of very different views feel comfortable and we have an intellectual discussion and are trying to be real with each other and also respectful. And I hope we've been that way with you. 
and uh, this, this is just a, a big dose of heavy duty uh, for us to deal with here, but mm-hmm. we try to make that sort of the place where that happens somewhat frequently. So I want to thank you so much, and I need to close by asking you where people can get your book. Sure. Uh, well, thanks for having me, first of all, and I completely embrace and thank you guys for your hospitality, and this has been really fun. Um, and I would say uh, check out Amazon.com. You know, you can get it on Amazon. Um, but, you know, it's Fishers of Men, the Gospel of an Ayahuasca Vision Quest by, you know, Adam mm-hmm. Ellenboss. Uh, you can go to my website, FishersofMenBook.com, uh, FishersofMenBook.com, and, uh, you know, check it out there and, and see what's going on there. Or, you know, Facebook yeah. me if you want to if you want to chat more. Yeah, I'm on Facebook. Okay. And I'll put that link uh, in our archives with the show uh, so people can go to that Go to that site and uh, get your book. Thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, we'd like for you to keep in touch with us on, on where your journey continues to take you. I'd love to come back anytime. Okay, thanks again. Yep, bye-bye. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, getting out of here, Bionic. Okay, we got to go. Uh, we hope you all enjoyed. This was a challenging show, um, but we think it's educational for our listeners uh, to be able to see what may be going on in the future. And somebody else we enjoy is Merv, who can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. We'll come back tomorrow for tomorrow's trimmers. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Ciao. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And Tom, uh, I f- refuse to choose left or right. And instead, going in the Jesus route, bionic. Mm. Boy, that's a bold statement there. And that's a cumulative one based upon many years of uh, experience on the old Future Quake show here. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. That really encapsulates a lot, doesn't it? I guess I thought yeah. it was might have been a little flippant. but And I'm going to guess our stories might uh, indirectly refer to that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, it's good to be back with you again. It's Friday. We hope you enjoyed our interview this week. And uh, being Friday, it's something special we do. Tom Bionic, what is it that we do uniquely on Fridays on Future Quake? Well, sometimes we get a little bit out of hand uh, being okay. funny. All right. I, 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 I say that mostly pointing you well, know, to me. Well, um, other times tip. we... Um, is there a name? Is there a general capsule you could capsulize it? I would say, I would say it's reading... Really interesting news stories. Um, okay, that sounds pretty good. I call it tomorrow's <laughs> tremors or today's review of the future's news. And by the way, we have a listener out there. I'm not going to embarrass the person uh-huh. because I really appreciate them and they're a friend. Yeah. But, you know, there's so many. And now I only thought of this because of your mention. Oh, I have a quick retraction to make after that. Okay. Yeah, or uh, correction, I guess. There are people all over the map in our listening audience. Mm-hmm. Most people really enjoy our repartee, enjoy our... Mm-hmm. Levity, the fact that we're in such heavy-duty material, 
that we lighten it up, that we don't act like preachers. Mm-hmm. Other people are different. They're used to a more traditional kind of thing. And mm-hmm. one of the emails I got from somebody that said, uh, and, I, and I don't mean this if you're listening in a negative way to you. I just thought it was an interesting comment. Mm-hmm. Um, that they didn't really like our foolishness, you know, mm-hmm. when we talk around. And I and I told them, I said, look, it's all we know is foolishness, and yeah, uh, it's just it's just how I, we do, and people I, I like it. I take full blame for that. Like you're very serious, very well spoken. Yeah. I'm like a four year old. There's just nothing. I mean, you know, well, you can't no. cast your pearls before swine. I think I'm there too. I cast my swine before pearls. But <laughs> uh, but this person had made an interesting suggestion. <laughs> Uh, they said, well, instead of us joking between things, why don't we just read excerpts from, um, who was the famous British, uh, minister that's quoted all the time? Um, not Chesterton. Who, who's, who's the minister? Oh, you meant C.S. Lewis? Spurgeon. 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 That we would just make quotations of Spurgeon and things for transitions rather than. I'm cool with Our that. joking, so. Yep. You think you're an inch, just an inch like, too high. Can you imagine what, the, what that would be like though as we would transition, like you would just read a, a thing, I would say. I've got and the Bible says. I've blah, got blah, blah, the collected works works of Spurgeon on my phone. I know you're a fan of him, and I yeah, and I am sure. too. But I just thought it was sort of an interesting because we'd almost have to wear like smoking jackets and pipes to be able to transition that way. But sure. I just thought it was an interesting comment. Appreciate you all making yeah. a comment out there. Yeah, it's really hard to like please everybody. I mean, and I really. And I think we've proven that. Yeah, I I, I think we've single handedly pleased yeah. nobody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pleasing anybody is our big challenge. Yeah. We don't even like each other most of the mm-hmm. time. You know, it's it sort of like when I was uh, in my younger days. You know, I could have any woman I pleased. I just couldn't please any of them. Oh, there you go. Very, very witty. But thank goodness uh, Mrs. Future took pity on me. There you go. Um, your retraction before you forget. Oh, yes. Uh, I made, uh, we did a, we did a, I read a story about a guy who, I can't remember his first name, but his last name was Williams. He was a, flew the queen around and yeah. he was heavy. Uh, he wasn't English. He was Canadian. I wish I'd had that before we got all those emails about that. Yeah, sorry. But, yeah, I mean, he was like this crazy psycho killer. It turns yeah. out he was Canadian. We had... Uh, and I I actually have a bunch of interesting... We had emails from the Psycho Defamation Society, both England and Canada, emailing us yeah. on that one. So They were mad. They were threatening. Well, lots of one of them because you defamed them. The other one, you didn't give them credit. So yeah, there you go. But thanks for that retraction. Uh, we need to jump into uh, substantive okay. content. Hit so, it. do you want to hit it or me? No, you hit it. I'm pointing at you, buddy. You sure? Spotlight's on you. Okay. All right, then. I've got a quick one. Okay. This is from BBC News. Speaking of the uh, British. Uh, th- now, th- some of this information, people may have come across it through one other channel or the other. I'm sorry if I'm uh, redundancy quake, but... Um, this is an interesting one. It says, George W. Bush had sickening feeling over WMD uh, lack. It says, in his autobiography, which, you know, just came out, mm-hmm. Mr. Bush focuses on 14 major decisions in his life and presidency. U.S. Our former U.S. President George W. Bush still has a, quote, sickening feeling about the failure to find weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, uh, U.S. media report. The revelation comes in his memoir, Decision Point, set to be published next week. He also reveals that he temporarily considered replacing Vice President Dick Cheney, calling him, this is, this is Bush calling him, quote, the Darth Vader of the administration. Not even George Bush liked him. That's Bush odd. calling him Darth Vader, okay? Not some kind of mm-hmm. commie pinko liberal, you know, lefty. That's mm-hmm. George Bush. Okay, it says, but he had no comment on his successor in the White House, Barack Obama. 
that's because they're on the same team. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my ad. Mm-hmm. The 64-year-old former president defends his decision to invade Iraq in his autobiography, which was obtained in advance by the New York Times. He argues that Iraqi citizens are better off without the former Iraqi leader, Saddam Hussein, whom he calls a homicidal dictator. Well, that may or may not be true, but uh, from everything that I've been able to discern, the Iraqis sure don't feel that way, uh, Yeah, which is interesting. In fact, the Iraqi Christians don't feel that way. Hmm. Now... All of a sudden, out of the blue, when they were getting the war drums going, we were flooded with stories in the media about how his sons, Uday and Hussein, would go pick up girls off the street and take them. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know, some of that stuff may be true, but the thing is, they were our buddies until then. Mm-hmm. They were our good friends until the Gulf War. Yeah, we, we looked the other way. We sold them the chemical yeah. weapons. The, the chemical the, weapons that yeah. we, we criticized yeah. before were our I weapons. I had to go find the congressional transcripts over that To one. confirm it. Yeah. Uh, so... Anyway, uh, they're saying they're better off, but as we know, Iraqi Christians have been basically driven out of the country in the aftermath of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just handfuls of them are left. He says, he argues that Iraqi citizens are better off without former Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein, whom he calls a homicidal dictator, adding the U.S. is also better off without a Mr. Hussein pursuing biological or chemical weapons. But Mr. Bush admits that he was shocked when no weapons of mass destruction were found in Iraq. No one was more shocked and angry than I was when we didn't find the weapons, he writes. Well, that certainly stands counter to uh, uh, Colonel Wilkerson's testimony, where he said he believes that certain members of the administration, uh, and I think he believed, even named Dick Cheney by name, yeah. uh, as well as Bush, knew for a fact that this was right. all a sham. Right. Well, that's one thing. But the thing that, that is significant of this to me in fact, he says further, he says, I had a sickening feeling every time I thought about it. I still do. Mm-hmm. There are still many people today in a large part of the Christian population that still believes that they were there and that they found them and that the press didn't report on it mm. because they don't want to admit that they weren't there. Mm. And so there's a, still a lot of Christians who are saying, no, 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 they found them. And so here we have the president himself, who you think would know. And in fact, would even have reason to cover up and say they were <laughs> if they weren't. And that. he's saying... No, they weren't there. They weren't there. So we need to put to bed this idea that for some reason they were, but it was covered up or something like that. Mm. They simply weren't there. Um, I believe that back then I had a different worldview, you know, a few years ago, Mm -hmm. and I believed that they were there because I believed what I was told. And hopefully I'm smarter than that now. Uh, He says in his memoir... The former president also says he spent weeks investigating the possibility of replacing Mr. Cheney with Tennessee Senator Bill Frist for his 2004 re-election campaign. The idea was prompted in 2003 during a private lunch between Mr. Bush and Mr. Cheney, who offered to drop out of the race. He says, I did consider the offer Mr. Bush writes in the memoir, according to the New York Times. He says he w- Now, this is Bush talking about Cheney. He says, he was seen as dark and heartless, the Darth Vader of the administration. That's pretty amazing admission there. Yep. Mr. Bush adds he was intrigued by the offer because he wanted to put an end to any notions that Mr. Cheney was the real decision maker in the White House. But the former president ultimately stuck with Mr. Cheney because he had chosen him to, quote, do the job, whatever hmm. that means. He was going to get rid of him, but then he called Dick for advice, and he said, "Yeah." Dick Cheney said, no. No, you're not going to do that. Yeah, he said, all yeah. right. And it says, and that, uh, that was his quote, that he had chosen him to do the job, whatever the job is, and then, and, quote, that was exactly what he had done. 
So, well, interesting. Maybe that was the job on nine one one. A lot of implications there. Mm-hmm. Yep. It says Mr. Bush also focuses on anecdotes and details of the fourteen major events of his life and presidency in the book, including his decision to stop drinking and his decision following the attacks of September eleventh. I'd love to see uh, if his conversion to Christianity made it in there. Yeah. I would too. We need to get him on the show, maybe to talk about the book. Maybe come on future quake. I'm sure he's got a press corps. Yeah, we'll see if we can do that. Mm -hmm. Says he admits he made mistakes when responding to Hurricane Katrina, and describes how he felt like a captain of a sinking ship when the economic crisis escalated toward the end of his presidency. But he adds the financial crisis should not become an excuse to raise taxes. The memoir could help Mr. Bush, who left office with some of the lowest approval ratings of any president shed a more favorable light on his time in office. He says, whatever my verdict on, pre- on my presidency, I'm comfortable with the fact that I won't be around to hear it, Mr. Bush writes. Hmm. So I thought there was a couple of revelations in there. Interesting. Rather than people saying, well, this is true or not true, or what's going on behind the scenes, he admits with his own mm-hmm. thoughts what we su- suspected. Mm-hmm. Well, let us banish every fearful thought and rejoice with exceeding great joy in the prospect that this year we shall begin to be forever with the Lord. Spurgeon. Okay, there you go. Yeah, I did it. Okay. Um, Friend out there, we see we responded to you. Mm-hmm. And we didn't. I didn't mean that in any condescending way. No, absolutely not. That was an intriguing yeah. We response. may not do it all the time, but, I mean, I'll yeah. try at least one of them. If you have any kind of, like, really silly kind of comments he makes, goofy kind of things like yeah. we would normally make that Got just have to come from him. Got some videos of him at, you know, at, at a party, you know, wearing a, mm-hmm. you know, hat, big funny hat. And did stuff. he ever talk about Jesus carrying a handgun? Yeah, that's in his later. Okay, I wondered where you got the that end of from. His life. Yeah, okay. that, that's from the last part of morning and evening. I figured that's yeah. Yeah. Okay, story. This is, oh gosh, this is one of the things that I don't know if this is a story per se, but this is a transcript uh, that came via the House of the House of Lords at 10:42 p.m. on November. In Parl- 1st. British Parliament. Yeah, British the upper Parliament. chamber. And you can you can find this. They ha- they have a uh, a website. If you type in. James of Blackheath, you can go to the website is called like theyworkforyou.com or something like that. Mm. And it, it, it gives the listing of all the speeches and transcripts mm-hmm. and stuff. And he's Lord Lord Blackheath or? Uh-huh, Lord Blackheath. Okay. Lord James of Blackheath. Um, so uh, anyway, this is a transcript and you can go and watch the video. I was stunned when I saw this. Um, this is Lord James of Blackheath speaking. At this point, I'm going to have to make a very big apology to my noble friend, Lord Sassoon. He's a treasury minister, because I'm about to raise a subject that I should not raise and which is going to be one which I think is now time to put on a higher awareness and to explain to the house as a whole, as I do not think your lordships have any knowledge of it. I am sorry my noble friend Lord Strathclyde, uh, the leader of the house, is not with us at this moment because this deeply concerns him. For the past 20 weeks, I have been engaged in a very strange dialogue with the two noble lords in which course, in the course of which I have been trying to bring to their attention the willing availability of a strange organization which wishes to make a great deal of money available to assist the recovery of the economy in this country. For want of a better name, I shall call it Foundation X. That is not a real name, but it will do for the moment. Foundation X was introduced to me 20 weeks ago last week by an eminent city firm, which is FSA, FSA controlled. Uh, its chairman came to me and said, we have this extraordinary request to assist in a, in a major financial reconstruction. It is megabucks, but we need your help to assist us in understanding whether this business is legitimate. I had the biggest put down of my life from my noble landlord Strathclyde uh, when I told him this story. He said, why you? You're not important enough to answer the 
to have the answer to a question like that. He's quite right. I am not important enough. But the answer to the next question was, you haven't got the experience for it. And here, here's the interesting part. Yes, I do. I have had one of the biggest experiences in the laundering of terrorist money and funny money that anyone has had in the city. Now, this is a, a, a member of parliament saying this. Yeah, uh, to the House of Lords at 1042 p.m. on November 1st. Okay. This is a transcript from the official website. You laundering can terrorist money. Yes. Uh, Baron Hollis of Higham, he's a labor of la- the Labor Party, said, Where did it go to? Lord James of Blackheath says, Not in my, into my pocket. My biggest terrorist client was the IRA, and I am pleased to say that I managed to write off more than one billion of its money. Um, I have also had extensive connections with North African terrorists, but that was of a far nastier nature, and I don't want to talk about that because it is still a security issue. I now, that would probably be Muslim, wouldn't it? Yes. If mm-hmm. it's North African. Absolutely. So it's money being Al-Sahab. laundered or coming through Western mm-hmm. Western government mm-hmm. associations mm-hmm. while we're on the pretext of fighting them. Yes, yes, of course. Thank you for making Sorry. that. No, 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 keep, keep that up. Uh, I hasten to add that it is no good getting the police in because I shall immediately call the Bank of England as my defense w- witness Given that it put me into the into deal with these problems, which is uh, from what I've read in commentary, that's sort of like a direct, sort of a death threat, really. Mm-hmm. Um, the point is that when I was in the course of doing this strange activity, I had an interesting set of phone numbers and references that I could go to for help when I needed it. So the people in the city uh, have known that if they want to check out anything that looks uh, at all odd, they can come to me and I can press a few no- phone numbers to obtain a reference. The city firm came to me and asked whether I could get a reference and, and a clearance on Foundation X. Uh, so he's endeavored to do that. Uh, moving on. I found myself between a rock and a hard place that was totally paranoid about each other because the Foundation X people have an amazing obsession with their own security. They expect to be contacted only by someone equal to head of state status or someone with an international security rating equal to the top six people in the world. This is a strange situation. My noble friends Lord Sassoon and Lord Strathclyde both came up with what should have been an absolute killer argument as to why this could not be true and that that we should forget it. Um, Anyway, moving on. My noble friend, Lord Strathclyde, came up with a very different argument. He said that this cannot be right because these people said at the meeting with them that they were still effectively on the gold standard from back in the 1920s and that their entire currency holdings throughout the world, uh, which were very, very large, were backed by bullion. My noble friend, Lord Strathclyde, came back and said to me that he had an analyst working on it and and that this had to be stuff and nonsense. He said that they had come up with a figure for the amount of bullion that would be needed to cover their currency reserves, as said, which would be more than the entire value of bullion that had ever been mined in the history of the world. I am sorry, but my lord friend Strathclyde is wrong. His analysts are wrong. He had tapped into the sources that are available, and there is only one definitive source for the amount of bullion that has ever been taken from the Earth's crust. That was a National Geographic magazine 12 years ago. Whatever figure it was that was quoted was then quoted again in six other sites on the Internet, um, everyone is quoting one original source. There is no confirming authority. But if you tap into the Vatican accounts of the Vatican Bank, come up with a claim of total bullion, uh, and then uh, Lord de Molay, who's the government whip, 
The noble lord is into his 15th minute. I wonder whether he can draw his remarks to a conclusion. Uh, he keeps going. The value, total value of the Vatican bank reserves would claim to be more than the entire value of gold ever mined in the history of the world. Now, uh, this is the kind of stuff you don't normally hear talked about in this a, isn't on kind of an parliamentary chamber. Sort of a gig, yeah. About that in the Vatican bank. Yeah. Now, is he saying facetiously that like it's impossible that the Vatican bank could be that much? Or he really is saying that it's that big? No, what he's saying is that whatever foundation X is, and I think he may have, he may be referring that it is the Vatican in some way, shape, mm-hmm. or form. Okay. Uh, they have all this bullion, uh, and it's more money. The problem is, is they, look, we've got all of this money. It's backed by gold. And uh, all of these accounts, it's, it's backed up by gold. But we don't, um, uh, uh, Strathclyde, Lord Strathclyde, put his analysts on it, and they came to a source that said, well, there's not even that much gold that's ever been mined. And they said, and the problem is, is that, Ge- National Geographic thing is inaccurate because all of this stuff has been hidden for a long time. Hmm. So, um, anyway, that's uh, uh, the type of thing you don't hear in front of a, a major group of uh, sort of congressional House of Lords. And government people are the ones that would usually dispel all those as silly conspiracy theories. Yeah. What you just said, except mm-hmm. one of their own. Maybe he'd had a little too much or whatever, but well, that his lips his, were loose. Yeah, that was sort of his defense. Which yeah. Uh, uh, I think uh, in a conversation I had with somebody about it, uh, they they translated it to "Please don't kill me, Illuminati." <laughs> yeah, uh, right, right. He had he had loose lips, basically. Yeah, that uh, they would normally mm-hmm. try to keep away from that. Yeah. So, so what exactly all that means, I'm not entirely sure, but I, that was definitely future quake worthy. I think. I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so. I hope there's something else that comes from that. And that's not an anomalous thing. Mm-hmm. I hope they say, oh, I don't know what I was well, thinking. I was crazy. That's it'd be, it. It would be interesting to ask the uh, the new head of the Congressional Banking Committee, yeah, Ron, Ron Paul. Paul. Yeah, Things will be... get exciting there. <laughs> yeah, he quoted. He, he was quoted a couple yeah. of days ago by saying, I plan on doing this job and approaching this job in a way nobody else has ever done before. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, he better do like his protege, Buford Pusser, and put tape on his car hood I was gonna so get, you can say, see if it's been two by fours or yeah what? <laughs> well that too because he's sort of going in similar territory yeah. Buford did. you know how that turned out for him uh-huh. so he'd, he'd better put tape on the hood to make sure somebody's not tampered with stuff and things mm-hmm. like that so yeah I could see Braun Paul walking around mm-hmm. the floor of the Congress with a big two by four mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> where's Barney Frank okay I gotta you want me get into this one here this is a sort of a heavy duty one mm-hmm. um this was sent to me by a very close brother of ours mm-hmm. uh, who put a quick disclaimer on it. He said, uh, this is from WorldNet Daily. I do not subscribe to everything WorldNet Daily says. But he says, um, what this author says, much of it's true regarding Christianity Today magazine and how they've gotten away from oh, biblical yeah, belief I, and I, stuff. I remember sitting in a sitting in a, in a Christian ministry's front office and they had one open. Uh, yeah. On the table, and I opened it, and I read some of the most ridiculous things. I did. right, I, I was right. I would say this is very close to ba- blasphemy. But here, so. here, here's what I want to say, and this is something that I think causes a lot of confusion with our listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and I know the person who sent this understands this, but I want to make sure it, it spurred a thought in me. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was saying the fact that they depart from biblical teaching, mm-hmm. which is obviously wrong. You and I agree that that's wrong, but. A lot of times people look at the political comments people make and say, well, then that must be all wrong, too. And most of this article from World Net Daily, they're much more concerned about political things than they are spiritual things. Okay, mm-hmm. 
So they go after some of the political points that they make. And I, I have to confess to you, I don't completely disagree with what Christianity Day says. But that's no endorsement of their doctrinal kind of things. Okay, sure. So uh-huh. I just want to make sure people understand. But I'll share it with you uh, because it was forwarded to me. Um, uh, this is from World Net Daily. It says, Christian media swings left, which... One or two people, well, maybe one or two, mm-hmm. have accused us of that out of our tens of thousands. Yeah, but, well, uh, they're, you know, you know. Uh, D- David Neff is editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. The magazine is still considered to be mainstream and representative of evangelicals. It was founded when Ike was president. It's amazing how many Christians consider it to be their friend. In reality, it is center-left, and now again, that has nothing to do with Bible doctrine. It just says it's center-left. It's a political issue. Mm-hmm. And fairly contemptuous of the issues conservative Christians hold dear. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, again, I want to divorce this from the whole doctrinal mess. Okay, it says, Witness Neff's recent Facebook post in which he cites a Wall Street Journal piece about the Ground Zero Mosque. Uh, Neff said that all the negative attention the mock project has received, mosque project, has in fact helped amass a war chest for building the mosque. Mm. I'd say that's probably true. Yeah, it's right, it's sure. helped them to get a rallying cry, just like if somebody was attacking Christianity or strong Islam push, it would rally the the Christians. Mm-hmm. So it, that's a natural thing yeah. when you're going to do. There's going to be a pushback. Um, he says again, uh, Neff was citing the Wall Street Journal article, but one wonders why he seems to aim a weird web of blame at Americans who find the mosque both offensive and potentially dangerous. Why don't you ask our Leslie Dick? I don't know who that is. He's the guy. He was a he was a a, a New York, um, I'm sorry, New Jersey uh, war strategist and security expert who contributed 100 percent of their of the Park 51's mosques budget between 2006 and 2008. Hmm. You're saying there might be a little bit more there than what our media tells us. Is well, that I'm, what you're I'm, hinting at? All I'm saying is that our Leslie Deke who uh, is a security expert, works for a group called the Patriot Defense Group and has contributed significantly to the Army War College and other things, gave 100% of their operating budget between the years of 2006 (laughs) and 2008. To that mosque. To that mosque. (sighs) Okay. Thank you. Uh, 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 He says... uh, uh, during the Gulf War, an editorial in the magazine went into useful idiot mode, claiming that Iraqi Foreign Minister Tariq Aziz was in fact a Christian. Uh, Aziz was a Christian in the sense that he apparently belonged to an Eastern Orthodox Church. Readers with an even moderately high IQ will understand that Aziz was a Christian like Herman Goring was a Christian. Your religious affiliation isn't a bonus when you're brutalizing human beings. Mm-hmm. Goring, a good, the good Lutheran which I think that's a slam against Lutherans when they say that, was not a Christian. Aziz, a Chaldean Catholic, joined the Ba'ath Party in 1957. Why would Christianity Today push his alleged Christian heritage when he was a key figure in the grotesquely abusive Saddam Hussein regime? Leftist media types, especially Christian, will often change the subject in such a conversation and ask something like, well, where was your criticism when the Reagan administration was cozying up to Saddam? A fair question, but in another conversation. Notice this tactic of shifting focus away from the subject at hand. Why do center-left Christian media whitewash totalitarian regimes? Center-left? I would say I would <laughs> yeah. say that's sort of the other way around. The reputations of center-right does that. Yeah. Um, that's an odd... In fact, right is usually tied with the totalitarian regime, except for communism. Yeah. Um, 
So it, it's 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 a little weird. And the fact, I think I think what they do is they're pointing out the hypocrisy. Uh, you're saying this, but but when your man was in office, Reagan, it was everything was cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they don't like that. It's it says why do they denigrate allegedly fellow evangelicals? Uh, in 1998, uh, CT ran a cover story in which the target was evangelicals who support Israel and the teaching of Bible prophecy. It was a real hatchet job, complete with caricature figures of key prophecy teachers on the cover. <laughs> it was deeply offensive, awesome. but CT. <laughs> CT just rolls along, somehow fooling even conservative Christians who think the magazine keepers are one of us. Mm. So the fact that they would criticize certain teachers of Bible prophecy or those that have unabashed support for Israel mm-hmm. would be you're going against Christianity in general. Uh, it says, much of what passes for Christian media today is really at odds with traditional biblical perspectives. Um, I'll say. But it may not be the kind of people that they're thinking of. I think they hit the market. They hit the target. They just didn't intend to hit. It was the self-inflicted. So, yeah. Maybe they, they shot got one of the U-shaped arrows. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because the the editor of Christianity Today was the one who said on our show that he doesn't lose his sleep at night if we're torturing innocent people. Yeah. Um, I wonder if that would be Jesus' opinion. Uh, I don't know. Therefore, Jesus carried a handgun, so. Okay. Thank you. That was yeah. that. That yeah. was uh, that British uh, minister said that right. Yeah, Spurgeon. Uh, it's right yeah, here. Yeah, Spurgeon. You've got page that. Page 142. Okay. Um, oh, we got to bring Merv in. Merv, would you come tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the shows, topics, or guests, or suggestions for future show, topics, or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. Let's hit it. Come back next week for another great guest. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake.